And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be. Welcome to another edition. And yes, we're live tonight um, on the other side of midnight, where, as I've said now relentlessly for five, six years, maybe seven, almost anything can happen and does. Now, let me give you a quick preview. Last night was part one of tonight, which is part two of our ongoing I know this sounds like science fiction, E.T. Communications Experiment, featuring our um, uh, heroine of the hour, Maria Wheatley, archaeologist Maria Wheatley, dowser Maria Wheatley, uh, pioneer, uh, intrepid pioneer, because she braved all kinds of elements to carry out a most remarkable experiment. And if you have not heard last night's show, you need to join Club 19.5 and uh, listen as soon as possible, because this is phase two of an ongoing ET communications effort by means of VHF radio frequencies in the 144 to 432 megahertz range that is getting all kinds of extraordinary responses, which appear to be in code appear to be codes consisting of multiple constants, hyperdimensional numbers, geometry, and multiple frequencies, which can be decoded in terms of fundamental mathematical ratios, et cetera, et cetera, sacred geometry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that was last night. We kind of gave you an overview of the last couple of months. We've been since December 4th when we sent our first high-powered radio message to Oumuamua, the first interstellar visitor in modern times, which is zipping out of the solar system at escape velocity and something like uh, two and a half billion miles out there in the dark, leaving forever, uh, never to return. And that's going to be another whole show because there's some potential new significant developments uh, uh, based around the Oumuamua idea and concept and visitation. But what we decided to do after the remarkable positive results from that communications effort, which also involved sending messages for a period of one evening to the moon, and what we got back from that effort was a series of numbers that pointed us directly at Stonehenge. So we looked around and we said, let's see, who could we get to go to... I'm just kidding. Obviously, there was only one person on the planet that we could pick on, and that was Maria. And she volunteered as soon as we said Stonehenge, and the rest, as they say, is history. So last Friday, for those of you who've been, you know, living off planet for the last week, um, we... uh, had her go to the center of Stonehenge and broadcast a pre-recorded three-minute, three-minute plus, 330 seconds, something like that, set of signals in the middle of Stonehenge to see if we got any responses. And last night was occupied with relaying the results of responses not only on her recorder there in Stonehenge, but from Michael Hill, who was located near Crystal Springs, Florida, from my system here, located about 60 miles from Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, 
uh, David Saria, who is in the uh, eastern part of British Columbia, north of Idaho. And um, we, we, we're, we're trying to be adding to this network as the weeks proceed and as our experiments deepen and become more mature. So tonight, what we are going to do is continue with the analysis of what uh, we were discussing last night, which is the decodings and analysis, both in terms of audio and signal processing and spectral displays and every way that you can process a waveform uh, known to Western science. Well, not every way. Um, last night, Thomas introduced us to the idea that we could put these signals through a Morse code translation program, which he found online, and lo and behold, it began spitting out a lot of recognizable letters, particularly numbers and letters that focused around E and 5, with some S's and a couple of H's and an A and an I thrown in, and then David uh, Sarita, who is our um, forensic expert in uh, ancient Semitic languages, said, oh my gosh, that's that's out of the Gnostic Gospels. <clears throat> and of course, the cat was among the pigeons because uh, he and Thomas spent the day talking about possibilities, and uh, we'll get into that. The most extraordinary new news was that last night, John's analysis wasn't quite ready. Jonathan uh, Womack's analysis wasn't quite ready. And you can go and read the bios of all these people. Uh, for those of you who've been following this work for months, you know who they are. For those of you who don't, I'm not going to waste valuable airtime introducing them, uh, except to say just go to the other side of midnight to the guest page, and their bios are all there. And they have very diverse and remarkably convergent bios because everybody has a role and it's very organic the way this team has kind of come together and how the analysis is falling out of what we're doing separately as we made a big point last night initially we each were looking at this separately um and we were focused on our own analyses then we began to compare notes last night we'll continue that tonight but the most amazing news, and of course it's going to keep everybody, including me, on the edge of my creaky uh, rocking chair here, um, Jonathan tonight reported in analyzing some of my recordings that he has found for the first time in anybody's reports, including David's you know, months and months old uh, working with this technology, he has found for the first time a human voice, human speech. And it appears to repeat, if I can remember what he just told me, the same thing again and again and again. So he's off now preparing a file so we can actually play this on the air. And then we'll do some more technical analyses like looking at waveforms, comparisons, and all that. And um, it's, it's going to be really, really intriguing to see if we identify who we're hearing or the relevance and context of whatever message that he has heard in plain language. Because up until tonight, up until right now, the only coherent information we have decoded has been in the form of frequencies, units of measure, geometry, things like that. 
if we actually have a voice and we're not eavesdropping on some, you know, military transmission or some, you know, commercial television station or whatever, then this represents a new uh, level of the uh, experiment. And what I'm going to do, uh, I was going to try to do it during the show to see if even talking about this triggers some kind of response. But since I can't be in two places at once and I don't want to produce a several gig file, since I can't get upstairs to the other computer to, you know, start and stop it appropriately, I will do that off the air after the show tonight, uh, several days after Maria's experiments, you know, with what, uh, it's seven days plus, it's nine days now since she was in the middle of Stonehenge. So we should be eavesdropping on either background traffic, some kind of intergalactic direct transmitter system, and you can look up Dirac. It's going to be fun for you. Google is your friend. Uh, we might talk about that tonight as well because we've got uh, one of our prime generals with us, Ron uh, Gerbron, who knows a bit about almost everything we're trying to crack. He has his own opinions, of course, but he is a font of data, and so we dip into his memory files many times, which is why he is on these shows because you never know when something that we have discovered will spark something that he has encountered, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. And then we are, uh, as my grandmother used to say, off to the races. So without further ado, let me introduce David, David Sarita, um, Thomas um, uh, Mathers, uh, Maria Wheatley is with us, um, uh, Jonathan Womack, as I said a few moments ago, uh, Keith Morgan, of course, is standing by uh, in, in case we get into technical wilderness and we need some technical assistance. And then I believe Dennis Stone is with us. Dennis is the um, owner and manager and director of the uh, site in New Hampshire called America Stonehenge, which from various radiocarbon dating appears to be, you know, almost 10,000 years old and is contemporary with ancient sites in the, uh, on the European continent, in, including uh, the earliest phases of, of uh, Stonehenge and Woodhenge and, and surrounding uh, uh, sites there in Britain. And so what we're going to try to do, given that we ended our program last night by kind of forecasting that um, uh, Marie is going to be going back into Stonehenge a week from tonight, actually a week from this afternoon, on the 20th of February in the afternoon. She's going to be doing another experimental run. We're praying to the weather gods that it's uh, not sleeting and raining and freezing like it was uh, last Friday. And um, she will do a much more extensive protocol, um, which will be worked out this week. And then all of these separate stations will try to record during her time there in her transmissions uh, signals separated by literally thousands and thousands of miles on these two frequencies. We may add a third frequency, which came out of our discussion last night. Uh, we will make that decision probably later in the week. But we have a fertile arena to talk about tonight. Um, I'm just wondering, because I'd like to... Uh, I'd, I'd like to go back to open the show tonight to David Sarita because we ended on his frequency comparisons, 
which are a window into basic mathematical constants and codes and metrology. And then, as you know, uh, part of what we came across last night serendipitously through Thomas's use of the online uh, Morse code uh, algorithm is we appear to have a series of letters and numbers which are out of uh, the uh, Gnostic Gospels. And so, David, why don't we begin there and give people a little background on Semitic languages and why we, we probably aren't talking to ancient, ancient Hebrews. We might be talking to a library computer. We might be talking to uh, someone or something which is talking to us in a language which is kind of rooted in the ancient history we're trying to uncover, or it could be none of the above. So why don't you begin with the uh, background in, uh, in Semitic languages in the Middle East? I'll probably start with the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. And it's, you know, when, when Christians read the Lord's Prayer today, it's nothing like the way Jesus spoke it himself. And in English, it's, O thou from whom the breath of life comes, who fills all realms with sound, light, and vibration. May you touch me in my utmost holiest. So Jesus is addressing the breath which, and, the, and the breath gives um, vibration to word, which is, you know, language. And word in, in Greek is actually logos, which logos is one of the most mysterious words in the ancient Greek language because logos doesn't just mean word. It's actually word as vibration that causes action. And, and, and it has to be established in a mathematical ratio that produces a harmony. So words in the ancient world are not just um, fictitious to say that's an apple and that's an orange and this means go run and get the apple. It's not like that. They gave a very meaningful sound intonation and vibrations to words. And, and this happened to me very recently and this is so shocking to me as a researcher, because one of the numbers that I got on the radios from the transmission starting from, you know, just before Christmas to Oumuamua was this number that corresponded to the, the height of the water moment in inches, which was, you know, 6,666 point um, something inches converted to 155 point uh, whatever it is, um, in residue. I don't have the notes in front of me. So my, my, I intoned in front of my frequency meter, the same meter I used to capture frequencies coming in on the radio. I, I intoned the sound A, and, uh, I, and all of a sudden I saw the same number, exactly to two decimals of accuracy. And I said, how is my voice putting out this number that actually equates to the height of Washington Monument in inches perfectly to two decimals. And I said, it probably has to do with the fact that I've been exercising my voice, doing these ancient, these ancient vowel tonings that exist in this manuscript that was discovered in Nag Hammadi, Egypt in 1945. It, it, it's, it's labeled the gospel of the Egyptians, but it's not an Egyptian manuscript. It, it's true name is the, Gospel of the Great Invisible Spirit. And in this manuscript, we see the beginning of toning 
seven vowels 22 times, and 22 divided by seven is pi, which is which is the resolution of a circle, and that a circle as a circular waveguide wavelength is is this is not only symbolic, but it's actually how a vibrational sound emerges because what is the shape of the larynx, right? And the throat is a circular tube. And if I blow air through the top of a Coke bottle, which is a circular opening, I'll create this vibrational sound. So circle and sound and vibration and logos are very deeply connected. So what I'm saying is why with my voice, and I did this repeatedly, not just once, when I intone the vowel A with my voice, I'm getting the same number that came in on my radios from the Amuamua transmission that equated to the mathematics of the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument corresponds to the Great Pyramid of Egypt perfectly because if you make two circles whose diameter is the exact height of the monument, the Vesca Pisces that forms in between them is the exact finished height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, which is 480.69 feet. So why is that? So again... And David... If you look down from a satellite at Washington, D.C., as the early corona uh, spy satellite images did, you see the Vesica Pisces laid out with the Washington Monument standing up as a stall spire right in the middle of this incredibly important geometric construct. Exactly. So whoever put the Vesica Pisces in the lawn feature of the Washington Monument knew exactly exactly. The, Exactly the mathematics that, that I discovered that connects the monument to the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And, of course, the monument is an Egyptian obelisk, which is a monopole-type antenna. Now, I've taken my radio frequency meter, a TF2 trifield.com meter, and I put it on inanimate, long – like, for example, my stovepipe in my house is about 22 feet long. It's tubular. And it's an antenna, but it has no power in it. But if I hold my meter up to it, I should do a video of this. There's radio waves coming off my my stovepipe. Why? Because it's a conductor. It's erect as a monopole, as in the Washington Monument. No, it's not plugged into a power source, but there is a power source, which is called the Schumann Resonance. David, let me ask a really, really dumb question. And it's not. you'll see it's not ultimately dumb. With the radio we're using, the Baofeng radio, or with any radio, mm-hmm. how are the radio waves passing the antenna received by the circuitry in the radio? Are they coming from the side, or do they come from the end? Well, if you take the antenna off, you'll get no activity in the radio. So the antenna's height is proportional. No, 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 no. I'm talking about simple geometry. Because most of the time, you guys have been using the radio with it sitting vertically, with the antenna pointed toward the zenith of the sky. I actually tilt mine. I tilt mine at all different angles. I have been rotating mine horizontal Mm -hmm. and then moving it in azimuth, north, south, east, west, that kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. I get certain azimuths within an extraordinarily fine precision, like, you know, half a degree or less where the signal will come in and on both sides it'll be quiet or one side will be quiet and the other side will be just constant noise just just white noise so the it works best at 432 in this horizontal mode with the antenna pointed out 
like 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 a you know a schoolroom pointer but most of the time i've seen your videos with the antenna pointed straight up and that's how it's used in the field you know as as a as a walkie talkie or as a ham radio people hold it next to their mouth with the antenna more or less pointed up that's an incredible observation because you're right i've tested it at angles and sometimes it's incredibly active at an angle and then when i straighten it out it stops now if we're dealing with real radio waves radio to radio station to station it shouldn't care what the angle is really no it should not care at all so well wait, that, what 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 if we're dealing with polarized meaning it's it's geometrically aligned signals and if you have a polarized signal, either light or radio waves, if the antenna or the detector is at the wrong angle, it won't see or hear anything. It has to be aligned with the polarization angle of the signal it's trying to receive. And so that, to, would only, that could only mean the signal's coming from space because it that's what I'm that's what I, I'm yeah. trying to get to. Yeah, that's, that's why it was not a dumb question because no, I'm thinking no, would, this yeah. damn stuff is coming. Well, it's two places either from space or the center of the earth. <clears throat> I don't think it's from the center of the earth, okay? And remember, we're, we're not able to detect um, with a meter sensitive to eight gigahertz any activity on the meter when it's chirping. So we, we can't see, whereas if I push the call button at 432 or 144.1, my meter goes to maximum. So that means the incoming should do the same thing if it's coming in on one of those frequencies. And it's not because I don't see my meter showing any activity at all. So that means it's coming in. If it's coming in from space, one, it could be incredibly weak. And two, it could be coming in at a frequency that's beyond the scope of my meter but the antenna, see, the way antenna works is it's, 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 as a monopole, your wavelength is four times the height of the antenna. But that doesn't mean it will only pick up that frequency. It will pick up octaves of that frequency. Mm -hmm. and an octave is divided by with, two. With or lesser and lesser efficiency. With lesser and lesser efficiency. But it's most optimal at the, at at the, the resonant frequency your, four times its Right. physical uh, length. That's why in the old days you'd be driving along, you know, I remember living in the Central Valley of California and these massive radio towers were so tall because the, the wavelength was four times the height of that super tall antenna. And as antennas got shorter and shorter and shorter, the, the wavelength got smaller and the frequency got higher. Just like when mm -hmm. we had our first cell phones, remember, you'd be in a yeah, I didn't want to get us diverted from language into this, but to me, the geometry, the geometry of what we're receiving is as important as the, the uh, content. Because language comes, the earliest Semitic languages come from, I'll give you an incredible example. Like, let's just take the Tetragrammaton, which in, in the Hebrew language is YWHW, and you can't make any sound without vowels. And so the, the, the Hebrew name of God, which transliterates as I am that which came into being or I am that I am, the ancient Egyptians had a tetragrammaton of four letters that means the same thing. And this is documented in Peter Lamazuri's book, The Great Pyramid Decoded. And it, it's Hufwa, 
or hoof it's 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 huff wa. So it it means the same thing. It means I am that I am, but instead of instead it's actually kufa, which became huffwa, which became yawa. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now if I go to the Hopi language for the, the, the Hopi name for God, it's tawa. But if I take away the T, it's awa, yawa. You see it's the same it's the same name but but that particular culture uses this sharp the sharp sound as the T goes all the way into Mexico. For example, Tenochtitlan, which is Mexico City, if I take away the sharp T, I get Enoch land, which is the first biblical prophet. <laughs> and, and why that interests me is there I am in Chaco Canyon. And Chaco Canyon was probably built with the same mathematics and measurements that came out of the Mayan and possibly later Aztec civilizations, because we see similar architecture. But these Kiva circles, I go in there with a Leica laser, this was only three and a half years ago, and I'm measuring a perfect Hebrew holy of holy circle using the Hebrew long cubit of 20.4 inches per cubit, 20.4 something inches per cubit, I get I get a 34 foot circle diameter Right, and it's perfect on a Leica laser. It's 34 feet. Now that's impossible because that's a Hebrew measurement. So what is the Hebrew measurement doing in Chaco Canyon, New Mexico? And I, I told the park ranger. I said, well, remember, like- remember, Dr. Barry Fell, who was the genius at Harvard. I think his especially was marine biology, but he really should have been an archaeologist because he wrote a book called I think America BC, where he documented ancient Egyptian voyages up the Mississippi and into the far west. So those Egyptians would have had knowledge of a Hebrew long cubit, and did they give it to the Native Americans or immigrants from Mexico, Mayan descendants, et cetera, et cetera, finding the route. But we know from Barry Fell's pioneering work, and there's been a lot of substantiation subsequent, that the Americas were not isolated in the old, old time periods, you know, the gyres of the oceans are like galactic superhighways. And they, you know, Thor Heyerdahl proved you could literally float between Africa and Central America on a uh, uh, South Atlantic current. Exactly. And when wind would hit a something like a circular kiva, it would make a whistling, humming sound. It would resonate like blowing over a Coke bottle. Right, so a vowel sound is produced, and then when you when you compare your different languages and you look at their root structure and you take away your your consonant, your sharp sounds, and your syllables, and you look at your vowel central sounds, you'll see that what is the definition of of the of the ancient? You know how the the, the Great Pyramid of Egypt was it was it was Khufu's, which became which was originally Kufa, and Kufa was was really Yawa. It was really the same. It meant I am that I am. That's what it meant to the Egyptians too. It meant the same thing to the Egyptians as it meant to the Hebrews. And this is well documented in Peter Lemizere's book, The Great Pyramid Decoded. So when you see how transliteration of word occurs, and you see the birth of the Jewish religion, you actually see it being born out of these ancient Syriac and and all these different cultures that are coming into play because this 
this connection to this God source energy starts to appear. And then when the sharp sounds enter the language, it changes. Now, remember, the Tower of Babel incident is is very symbolic in the sense that when the tower was okay, David, we're, we are, we're coming up on the bottom of the hour, so let's okay. kind of pause here. Yeah, let's pause here. My guests this morning are too numerous to mention, and we're talking about communication. We are in touch with someone, and the closest analog we currently have is this. for the Green Revolution 2.0 is called Gates Ag 1, and it's highly funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates. The mission statement is all about how we must accelerate the deployment of new technologies to indigenous farmers, and it's going to help them with climate change, right? Again, it all ties back to that. And we must go in and take their heirloom genetics away from them, right? These these precious, uh, hardy, resilient seeds that have fed those people in various parts of the world for generations, for for hundreds of generations in some cases, and replace them instead with newly genetically engineered, CRISPR-modified, bastardized. That's why I say they're defiling the food supply. Ag tech, as it's called. And so this is why we now need to introduce the idea of a acute food crisis. And I would suggest that they have engineered, and we're staring right now down the barrel of this is the, the urgency in tonight's conversation uh, of an engineered food shortage. And they will use this food shortage, which you're starting to see now around the world, especially as the big bread baskets have started to experience crop failures. And they're shutting down their exports of grains, corn and soybean prices are rising precipitously. That means that the countries that depend on those exports, the net importers, are all already experiencing food crises. And so this is spreading around the world right now. And what will happen as we, you know, as we get through this is you'll see the media and these think tanks and the UN, all these, all these players will point at the problem. It's just the Hegelian dialectic again, right? They'll say, now you see, because of climate change, mm-hmm. this is why we're having these food shortages and of course the pandemic. And this is why, this is why we have to move into indoor vertical farms and lab-grown meat. And this, you, there's no option. Now, now you feel the pain, and now you see why we've been doing this. We've had your interests at heart the whole time. We're from the government. We're here to help. 
<laughs> right? So the, the, there, there's an acute crisis situation that we're now walking into, and that will be used to bring all of this nasty technology in. This is Christian Westbrook with the Ice Age Farmer, and you're listening to the other side of the news. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight, to be clearly separated from the other side of the news, which is hosted by Kintia and is, uh, shall we say, politically divergent from what you hear over this air. But I'm a firm believer in the First Amendment, even when people are wrong. Back to tonight's subject. Uh, We're trying to crack the code of who we're talking to and have been talking to in this very bifurcated way of stilted geometry and coding and frequencies and all that and trying to figure out through the labyrinth of transliteration of numbers and constants and geometry what it is that they're trying to tell us, where they're trying to point our attention. And the more fundamental question is, who the heck are they? Who have we opened hailing frequencies to? Okay, David, um, please please continue. Okay, so this is quite remarkable because we're talking about Stonehenge where Maria Wheatley transmitted. And the first number that comes in on her radio um, is actually the circumference of the Avebury holes, the 56 Avebury holes. And I got that same number on my radio in British Columbia two hours before she transmitted. Exactly. <laughs> now, watch this. This is quite remarkable. If you go to the Bible, Exodus 3.14, notice that 3.14 is pi, which is, you take the circumference, which is the first number we got, on Maria's radio and Maya radio divided by pi and you get uh, the totally acceptable diameter according to Britannica of the Avebury hole. So just look at that. But notice that in Exodus 3.14 is the first time we see the tetragrammaton, the Hebrew name of God, which, which existentially means the supreme I am that I am. It, it, there is no man sitting in the sky on a throne. It just means the infinite I am presence. So that means that that word... Well, hang on, hang on, because that really can be translated or transliterated as existence. Exactly. To be differentiated between non-existence, nothing, and something. And there's a pulse to it, right? So notice that it's Exodus 3.14, which is coded as pi. Now... What gets more amazing, again, in the, in the Egyptian, in Peter um, Lemissuri's research, the HWFW, notice there's two Ws, just like the YWHW in the Hebrew, actually means the same thing. It means the supreme I am. And then it later transliterates to Kufa, K-U-F-U, which becomes Khufu. And then they go, oh, it's Khufu's pyramid. He was the king, you see. But it's really Kufa, which was Yahweh, which was, which was Hufwa, which all means 
this kind of pulse I am. Now, I speculate because I've heard the NASA sound. It's almost like you're saying it's the physics. It's the sound of our sun because when when the Hopi named the sun god Tawa, and again, the T is Mesoamerican. It's all over the Aztec Empire. We remove the T, we have the same phonetic, Awa. (laughs) with <laughs> the same thing and when you listen to the sound of the sun the pure sound it's like yo whoa 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 that speeded up now when i when the real sound of the sun when nasa recorded it it was too s- slow for the human ear so they had to speed it up but it, which is essentially the same thing as what we're doing with these radio chirps is we're slowing them down from their speeded up state and we're we're, we're getting the same data but at a slower rate so I'm saying that the real phonetic awa, iwa, is, is really the early, early priests and priestesses were in such deep meditation, they were hearing the sound and the pulse of our own star, our own sun. And then when you go into, for example, the, the African Zuni name for the crater is Awanawelona, and again, I take away my syllables and I got wah, 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 basically. <laughs> it was just like, you know, my husky out there howling in the wind. So the, the, the question is, we start to egoify our interpretation of phonetic and then we, when we put our sharp sounds around the basic pulse, we, we think we're praying or we're relating to a different source when really it's actually the same thing. So... When we look at what Thomas Mathers brought in in the, you know, in the text from the um, the um, Morse code translator, I started looking at it, and I looked. I go back to my Gospel of the Egyptians, and I see the way the prayers actually were intoned at the time of Jesus, and I'm seeing some of the same structure. And there's so much similar structure, even when you can actually see this. And you go to the other side of midnight, and you go to Thomas's items, and you're going to go to item his item number eight. And Thomas's item number eight, Morse code. If you click on it, you'll see literally seven. You'll see Eve. E, E, is, he, she. It, it kind of sounds like yeshiva, yeshiva. And, it, and that's, that's the early structure of Yeshua, which became the name of Jesus. That's the early structure of it. Because, again, when you study the history of even his name, it's definitely not Jesus, because there is no J sound in, in the ancient Hebrew and the ancient um, Aramaic. That's a Latin sound. The J is Latin. So when the Latin, the Romans, the Romans were Latin speaking, heard his name, they couldn't pronounce it just like if I go, because I've been to Saudi Arabia and I've sat there and listened to the Arabs speak. I don't know how to do what they know how to do with my <laughs> voice. So I'll just put a J in there. When okay, I, okay. Well, one thing confuses me. Did you say Thomas's item seven or eight? Eight. Eight, okay. Now, let so me tell again, people, new people, because we're getting new people all the time, how to get there. Go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner for Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, February 13th. The uh, Rams won, by the way. I should have 
says at the top of the show. Um, that will take you to the guest page. Under the banner on the guest page at the top, you'll see uh, line items, links to various guests. Click on Thomas. That will take you to his section of Radio with Pictures. Scroll down to number seven. I'm sorry, number eight. And you'll see what you said last night was a um, ancient text we know as the Gnostic Gospels. So yeah, right in the beginning you'll see the message is five. Sahasava, Sahasava, and then it, it shows um, again Eve. You can see Eve is actually a real ancient Hebrew word. It, it is, it is ancient Aramaic and Hebrew because Eve and Adam, the Adama, are actually ancient. Um, are, are, are true ancient language. So they're, they're not made up in, in the modern sense of the reinterpretation of ancient scripture. So we see, even in the very end, the last um, part, you, you see, sus, she, he, shehe. So when I, when I see ai, I'm looking online, the third line from the bottom, I see ai, ai. I mean, that, that is ancient Aramaic right there. That, that is very clear stuff that you'll see in the Gospel of the Egyptians because you'll, you'll see these prayers that are in the Gospel of the Egyptians. And, and I'll just kind of read one here. Ai, Aisus, Aio, Aoua. You see, that, notice how those are all kind of vowels and there's very little um, syllable and, and, and consonant sounds in that. Mm-hmm. And, and it means really, truly, oh, Jesus, Mazareus, Yazadekis. It's a Jesus is actually Jesus with a Y. There's no J. Oh, Jesus, Mazareus. And then, oh, living water, oh, child of the child, oh, glorious name, truly, truly, Aeo on. Okay, so now I see the Aea here in, in with, again, notice the way Morse code is going to work. So Morse code is going to hear it's going to hear a phonetic and and the morse code will correspond to a a phonetic sound and convert it to a letter that corresponds to that sound right so what you're seeing here and what thomas has in this decoder we don't know where these words get separated Right? We don't know where they get separated. But if I go to the Gospel of the Egyptians, I see I-E-A-O, which is I-E-A and A-I-O. And if I go to Thomas's, and, and that actually may be an early interpretation of actually a prayer to, to the Creator or God or whatever you want to call it. But I see that in here. I see I-A-A. I see this is line three from the bottom. So one, two, three, four, five, six from the top. I see E-I-E-A-E-I, and, and that's the same phonetic. But when you're looking at what Thomas has here, there's no, we don't know where these separate. So what I, what I suggest and what Thomas and I were talking about earlier today is we really need somebody who is an expert in these ancient Semitic languages to look at this and this is actually from your radio, Richard. Thomas mm-hmm. told me this. So this item number eight is not Michael E. Hill's radio. It's yours. Okay. Where is the pure ease that he got in item seven, which really interests me, by the way, even as pure ease, because there are whole 
intonements in the gospel of the Egyptians where they'll just intone E, just pure E's. And, and those E's can be E's or eh sounds because, again, they have seven vowels and we only have five. We have A, E, I, O, U, and they have A, A, E, E, I, O, U. So, so they have seven. But therefore, there, there are a lot of real words in here. That, that that correspond to what could be ancient Aramaic, and again, it's okay, really okay. So so again, he said categorically last night, and he's he's kind of monitoring. He's got something else he's got to do before he no, can I'm, come. No, I'm on. here. No, I'm here. I wanted to actually just kind of jump in for for a quick second. No, please, because of... you said last night this wasn't Morse, but if we're getting coherent language, it's got to be Morse, doesn't it? <clears throat> Well, I mean, the, the interesting thing about Morse is that it's based off of a base two number system. Um, what we, what David and I discussed this afternoon was, um, and last night, I mean, maybe it wasn't clear when I was mentioning this, but you know, we've got we've got some data loss. So it's not like every single um, series of chirps are are necessarily correlating to a specific letter. So it's not writing a novel for us. Now the thing is, is that I do agree with Richard that it is really interesting that you know once we once I was able to sort of uh, focus in the sensitivity of the Morse decoder because the the uh, the one that was just had the E's and the different sort of you know, like e, 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 that was, that was using the basic form of the online, online tool, which is an open source tool um, for, for listeners at home. You can go onto the website and you can see where this was, this was done. Um, that being said, you know, what David is, is mentioning in terms of us not really being able to understand where like the kind of line breaks are, where the spacings are, um, you know, something that I, I was thinking about this afternoon after I spoke with David was maybe to slightly slow down um, the, the frequency because this is the untouched frequency. So this is your 1259. So this is this, this processed uh, file was from uh, the moment that Maria was actually transmitting, had transmitted, and was currently in in Stonehenge. So that was the file that I was concentrating on on processing. So I think maybe what's happening is that at certain points when it starts accelerating and you're getting a lot of faster kind of clicks, um, it doesn't seem to be to be uh, breaking it up. But um, you know what David and I discussed this afternoon was. Like, again, if you take a look at what kind of information we're extrapolating from, um, from, the, from the transmissions, it's sort of growing. And then we're kind of taking information from a previous analysis. We're incorporating some of that, and then we're retransmitting out, and then we're getting stuff back. So I think what we're going to try to do for the, for the next uh, transmission is to, in a very rudimentary way, because, I mean, again, that's why David was mentioning that it would be interesting if there's any listeners out there um, that are quite schooled um, uh, and scholarly in, the, in, in linguistics and etymology, um, you know, that would definitely be, be helpful. However, um, for the purpose of us being able to get something going for the transmission next week, um, I think what we're going to try to do is um, basically the same way that in the signal um, that we put together that was broadcast uh, on the last uh, transmission, we incorporated sort of parameters, things like, okay, 
uh, frequency sweep and and you know locations based off of certain specific frequencies we're encoding using the tonal frequencies of a sine wave like the most basic the most basic sort of oscillated form of of, of noise so what we want to do now is be able to sort of again establish some kind of parameters now we are seeing i think it's very strange as well that if this was just completely random okay then you would have perhaps other letters coming into it but if you take a look at it the it's it's a quite sort of narrow range of letters that are coming through and it does seem to sort of be leaning towards some t you know as as david was mentioning you know potentially some form of aramaic or, or something like that so what we would like to do is transmit out um sort of again parameters of a linguistics platform so and, and and relate it back to Morse. I think, you know, Morse is kind of is kind of um, a, a useful way right now for us to be able to encode in a base two number system uh, type of way things that we can derive uh, letters from. So what we're thinking of doing is going through the 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 alphabet or certain syllables and basically correlating that to a specific Morse code. So if it's like a I you know, that we do the Morse code equivalent to that. And we run through sort of a little bit of an alf alphabet, at least to kind of give an indication to that, okay, so we're seeing that you're coming, that there seems to be this language base or parts of this language base, even though what we're perceiving are generations and generations and generations off of what the architect's original language, you know, potentially could have, could have been. Um, you know, whether it's more related to Sumerian or whether it's related to Hebrew, whether it's related to whatever it is, there's going to be sort of, I think, connections that stretch all the way back to, in my belief, what I, you know, where I think this uh, network that we're tapping into, um, you know, basically was related back to. So that's going to be the focus for this week is to incorporate some type of an element. And, and Richard, we talked about this a couple of days ago, that now that we're starting to take a look at the uh, the transmission data and analyzing more of a rhythmic structure and now that we're actually kind of you know um, extrapolating some you know and extracting some type of information um based around a a, a, a number uh, um, uh, sort of a base two number system you know through morse code you know this could be a kind of a useful sort of way for us to try to get some semblance of of, of intelligence of it because i think we're sitting we're well wait, wait. you keep saying base two it's just binary on or off well exactly but the thing is is that the what the the rhythmic structure um if you take a look at the sound waves it's it's basically an it's an on off type of sound it's not like we're not seeing three different amplitudes or four different amplitudes the chirps are kind of coming in the chirps are a little bit different um they seem to be a little bit this uh, this transmission differed a little bit from the transmissions that we got back in december in the sense that it seemed to be really more kind of on the flow and sort of conversational feeling of the rhythmic structure of the chirps whereas the last one 
the chirps themselves were kind of intriguing when you really analyze the the audio because they seem to differ quite a bit. These ones, they differ. It's not like each one is identical. Mm. But what was much more interesting with this was was the rhythmic structure, and we didn't encode anything um, based off of any type of you know binary number system or some type of, of rhythmic structure. So it's just you know, as we do a test and we analyze it and we go back, we're sort of, in, you know, incorporating different elements. And I think this is a really important sort of element to be able to to get in for the the, the subsequent transmission. Okay. And what, what David and I had said was that what we would do is establish, okay, let's pick a language, okay, um, you know, um, Sumerian, and and then let's go through and actually play out the sound that it actually makes and relate that back to a more... Wait, wait, wait. Do we actually have phonetic translations of Sumerian? Well, I think it's whether it's Sumerian, whether it's, you know, Aramaic. I mean, we we have, again, this is just a very preliminary conversation. I mean, it's different between seeing a written language and hearing it spoken by a human voice. I know, but what we can do is that we can we can through the Morse code be able to sort of demonstrate a phonetic way ah, okay, of utilizing okay. the. All right, look, the, we we've got about English. seven minutes to the top of the hour. I want to finish up the language part at the top of the hour. Then I want to bring John on because John has some amazingly important things to say, culminating with we've got voices. We may not have to go through codes much longer. They may be trying to talk to us in real human speech. So let's move this conversation to where we can bring John on to give the backstory for that. David? Yeah, so there's a lot of languages that we need to look at. Sumerian is definitely among the oldest, and and Babylonian languages as well need to really be looked at because the Hebrew language is not really as old. It's nowhere near as old. Oh, as no, 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 of course not. Nowhere near as old as Stonehenge. So we would have to look at the, one of the problems, and I studied this in, in looking for the origin of the English and the French language, is there were so many Celtic languages that were lost in in wars and when the Romans conquered the Celtic territories. The Celts were fighting amongst each other, and they didn't even understand each other perfectly because their languages were not identical. And when people don't have understanding of each other due to a language barrier, they tend to fight more because they're frustrated and they don't really understand each other. So there wasn't one Celtic language. And so we 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 could again you have to look for origin started looking at origin of sounds that you know the, the shape of a flute, the shape of a circle, the the way wind moves over circular and curved surfaces surfaces and we start to see words forming and we start to see sharp sounds your your syllables and your consonant sounds mixed in with vowel sounds and then you start to see you know how a religion even forms and and in the beginning believe me the jews did not have an organized religion It, it was it was in a radical state for a very long period of time i've read really good history books on this so there even languages were not identical and easy to identify within the within the same community there were disagreements about understanding of word so if what we're receiving through the what thomas's data is pulling in in the morse code is very ancient which it 
might be, then we need people who really know a lot of words in Sumerian. And Zechariah Sitchin would have been the perfect person, but he's not alive anymore. So No, and I was thinking we, of reaching out to Stan Tennant, but I heard the other day that Stan may have passed and uh, I was not notified. So uh, he was no, not. No, he's still alive. Oh, he is? Still Good. Alive. Yeah, I checked this out yesterday. Thank yeah. goodness, because I'm going to call him up tomorrow. And if, he's, and if his health is anywhere, you know, he's the perfect person to go to for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, so let me, let me, obviously, I'll get back to everybody in the next couple of days and let you know whether he can, you know, play in the sandbox. Um, I, I want to lay out a kind of a, another dumb idea. Is it possible that we're looking at people, an AI, uh, a library, whatever, which is responding in a very McLuhan-esque fashion? In other words, instead of speaking to us in plain English, because it doesn't really know, I may not, you know, just thinking, it may not know who's transmitting to, to whom. It's, it's, it's pointing us in the direction of ancient earthly cultures that use these metrologies and numbers and frequencies uh, that have appeared in the most recent modern era, i.e. the last, let's say, 12,000 years, that in themselves may have encoded information from much older epics of human civilization, including high-tech, you know, Atlantean, Lemurian type, you know, uh, paradigms, but they're, but, they're, but they're basically responding in terms of a cultural link to what we have sent them, not knowing that we're not of that era. Am I making myself kind of plain? But perhaps, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, and we've got 30 seconds till the break. So tell you what, let's, let's everybody kind of take a pause. This is so amazing. I, I mean, this is absolutely phenomenally amazing that we're dealing with someone, some entity, some culture, some consciousness, some sentience, whether it's organic, alien, family, extraterrestrial, meaning beyond even space and time, other dimensional stuff, or none of the above. The only thing we can be certain tonight Sunday night, February 13th, 2022, is that we sent messages into the unknown, we've received answers, and the answers are multiplying and leading us to additional important questions, which we will try to answer, in part, when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall be right back.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. No, these are not our signals. This is from Star Trek IV. Remember the whale probe trying to get the humpbacks to respond in frequency and in kind to see if they were still alive and not extinct on Earth in the 23rd century? You know, David is really, really good at mimicking these these sounds because when he been did that little bit a few minutes ago, I thought to myself, damn, that, that sounds familiar. That shoo, 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 shoo. And then I thought, oh my God, it's, it's from Star Trek Four. Language from a probe to Earth seeking a response, just like what we're dealing with tonight. Okay, gentlemen and lady, welcome back to the uh, audience. So, um, David, let's wrap up quickly, and then I want to go to John, okay? Okay, so, funny, because I was on the set of Star Trek IV, so I know that movie so well. So, remember, the, the, number, the first number I got on my radio was 999.90 divided by pi. It's 318.278 feet. Then Maria gets the same number. And, of course, that corresponds with one of the acceptable diameters of the Aubrey Hall circles, the 56-stone circles, because this, there's not a perfect rate in that circle. There were several cross-sections documented in Britannica. So we got a match, and that's amazing that that came in on the radio. But then also on my radio, I got this other number and I want to go to this number because this number is 1510.71 and that showed up on Maria's radio and of course divided by pi it equals 480.87 feet and and the Great Pyramid's finished height is 480.69 feet. Now that is so accurate that they would send the circumference number of if they take the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt and draw a circle with that diameter, I 
get 1510.71. But there's something else about 1510.71 that is remarkable. And this is, you could call this an artistic interpretation, but... but um, yeah, let me interrupt. If, if, if people go to the other side of midnight and click on the banner, uh, othersideofmidnight.com, click on the banner, that takes you to the guest page, click on my items. If you look at item number four in radio with pictures, that is an old historic perspective shot, uh, I think around the turn of the 20th century, looking across the whole monument with the stones in the middle, and then the white circles at the bottom are some of the Aubrey holes, which used to hold in phase one, the blue stone sticking straight up. Those are the, uh, I think those are concrete. Maria, am I correct? Are those filled in concrete now where they used to have the, the stone standing? Maria? Yes, yes, they, that's right. They are. Okay. They're, they're in part of concrete. So this is an aerial perspective shot. You can see one of the pathways. There's some lumber there, which is part of this reconstruction era. On the very far side of the photograph is that bright ditch and bank, which Maria described last night. This is a very old vintage photograph prior to a lot of restoration, but I wanted you to see the relationship of this circle of Aubrey holes, 56 of them, which used to hold the bluestones in the phase one construction inside the, the bank and the, and the ditch as part of this initial hyperdimensional antenna system because we now have confirmation in this experiment, this damn place works as a transmitter and a receiver. And we'll figure out more details as, as the work goes on. But this is an amazing shot because it shows you where she was last week, wandering around in the sleet and the rain, trying to get readings, trying to transmit. And as you said, I think last night, Maria, you'll have kind of free reign to wander around the Aubrey holes to your heart's content um, and we'll get into more of what I'm going to recommend uh, later in the show but I wanted everyone to have a visual sense of context as uh, uh, David's wrapping up here before we bring John on okay so that so that's where Maria is standing and of course on her radio we get the circumference of exactly the symbology of she is standing in the perimeter of the Aubrey hole so we're, we're getting that number the circumference of that circle coming in on on her radio but then i and maria's data on her radio i get the number 15 10.71 which of course divided by pi 3.14159 equals the height of the great pyramid of egypt and i can come to the exact height of the great pyramid of egypt if i adjust my pi because again pi is not it, it, it's, it's a formula that has many interpretations that slightly vary just as the speed of light slightly varies so we're so accurate in our connection to this number in the Great Pyramid. But, but the 1510 means something else. Leonardo da Vinci finished probably his most famous painting, which is the Salvatore Mundi, in the year 1510. In fact, the painting is dated 1510. And it's a painting of the mystic Christ holding a ball in his hand with three points of light. And, and, and I know so much about this painting, we could do a whole show on it. <laughs> but the fact that the painting is dated 1510... Be careful, I may ask you to do that. And the fact that the painting is dating 1510 and divided by pi gives you the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And Jesus refers to himself as the missing capstone 
or the missing cornerstone, which many people have interpreted as that Jesus is the messianic capstone of the Great Pyramid, and that this number came in on Maria's radio has has two double connections to messianic symbolism. One, it's the year that da Vinci finished the painting, and probably right to the month, because 1510.71 is September the 16th in 1510, and I believe that's right on time with when da Vinci finished it. It sold for $450 million in the Christie's auction. Oh, my God. There's a new Sony Classics film that came out about the, 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 about the painting, and believe me, here's one of the most stunning things about the painting that corresponds to our work. The ratio of the height width of the painting is 1 to 1.44. Oh, my. And they God. nobody figured it out but me. <laughs> no, of course nobody figured it out. But because the, the Mona Lisa's height width ratio is, is 1 to 1. Point, um, it's 1 to um, 14, 15, the year Da Vinci was born, whatever that is. So the fact that the Da Vinci encoded meaningful ratios in his masterpiece paintings and nobody noticed and and the salvatore monday is one to 1.44 and that's you know we've been dealing with that number because maria was transmitting at 144.1 so there was a very famous french painter uh whose works were used by kubrick in 2001 in the drawing room scenes and which have all kinds of encoded geometry and symbolism and mathematics uh I used to be more conversant with this many, many years ago, but that's the only set of paintings I know, and I can't – Poussin, I think his name was Poussin, um, that encoded these kind of fundamental hidden constants. Now you're saying da Vinci in this incredibly modern, expensive painting uh, did the same thing in the actual – physical dimension so ratio of the painting i got it right down to the centimeters very hard number to get on that particular painting but i got the 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 height and width accurate to two decimals in in centimeters and it's one to 1.44 so of course that relates to the the mess the messiah and the 144,000 in revelation and of course you could interpret that to the 144,000 casing stones in the great pyramid but the fact that again the and the frequency we're using. And the frequency we're using. So why is And more important, number? the one they're using. Right. And the and that number came in on Maria's radio, fifteen ten point seven one, which as a date is September the fifteenth or sixteenth of fifteen ten when Da Vinci finished the painting. Now, it also happens to be the circumference of the height of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. So then the next number Maria gets, which is my item six, is the 1432, which is the frequency of a monopole whose antenna height is is a perfect royal cubit of 20.601 inches. And that, again, is remarkable that Maria would get that coming in on her radio, on her transmission. And my final number... Um, Keith needs to correct it because I made a mistake. Maria got this number, and this is my item seven. Eleven oh eight point ninety five divided by pi is three fifty two point nine eight. And guess what that is? The number of lunar days in a year is three hundred and fifty four. So we're only one number off because we're fifty three fifty two point nine eight. So we're pretty much at three fifty three. And um, I accidentally put the number 154 in there, but it should be 354. So there's 354 lunar days per year. So, again, why would Maria get this number 
honor radio, you know, accurate to better than 99% the number of lunar days in a year. And, and maybe maybe they are contesting that there's really 150, three, 353 lunar days per year, and not 354. So again, again, which corresponds? Or to or or David, they're pointing us to an earlier time. Remember, the moon is moving. Oh my God! The, I never the moon is receding from the Earth, so the the lunar month now is longer than it used to be. You just reel back the clock. They're giving us a clock reference. Oh, my God. We got to do this. That is brilliant <laughs> that you figured that out. So 352.989 lunar days per year, Maria. When in time were there that many lunar days per year precisely? in Because that would be sidereal time. Was it when Stonehenge was in operation? Oh, my God. This needs to be checked. Because right now the number is 354. Yeah. So, so we're... Oh, wow. That should be easy to figure this out. Is, this we, is called real-time science, folks. That's why you oh tune in. This is the only program on the air you will ever hear this stuff going on in real time by assembling the right people and mixing well. And that's why ten heads are better than two. <laughs> <laughs> Marie, what do you think? As she quietly unmutes. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry about there that. There you are. I'm, I'm just absolutely blown away. <laughs> I'm absolutely blown away, actually. And uh, as soon as uh, you said that, Richard, you know, about being a point in time, I just thought that makes so much sense. You know what's weird, Maria, is when I listen to the sounds from your recording, it's exactly like Thomas said. They were so intense and loud, and I thought, these are going to be really high numbers. And when I looked on my meter, they weren't very high. And I noticed when I tried to squeak my voice really high, I couldn't make the meter go really high. So I got my six-year-old daughter to squeak for me, and she got over 3,000 hertz out of her voice. Uh, I couldn't even get 1,000 out of my voice. So I thought the intensity of the sound coming out of your radio would produce these huge numbers, and they weren't really high numbers. They, they were numbers that were very reasonable. So it, it's more about amplitude. So you have frequency and you have amplitude. I would like to see from Thomas Mathers the data on the amplitude of the sound coming out of your radio or Jonathan Womack, because I don't know how to because that is one intense sound that came out of your radio. I mean, way more well, intense. She was in the center of the vortex. Right, and and one of I consider this data and the numbers I got alone more successful than any of the transmissions prior. And we didn't use Jimmy's massive antenna; we just had little old you standing in the circle of Stonehenge. So that tells us that the the, the very small amount of power coming out of that radio resonating with those blue stones, and it is. Is, is causing a reaction far greater than the huge 250,000 yeah, watts. Let me, let, me, let me interrupt and kind of give people a kind of a taste of what could happen next month, <clears throat> you know, after the Ides of March. Uh, do you know your dates yet? When oh, You obviously have to know your dates when you're going to be in Egypt. Maria? Uh, yes, I, I will be in Egypt uh, from March the 18th to April the 1st. Oh, okay. 
And on some of those dates, will you be inside in the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid? Yes, I will. Okay. What about the Queen's Chamber? Can you get in there? I'll just tell you yes, why. Yes, we are going to the the King's and the Queen's Chamber. I will check the with the itinerary exactly when. Because the Queen's Chamber is 10 by 10 royal cubits, using the correct royal cubits. And that's the same measurement as the tabernacle of Moses that held the Ark of the Covenant. It was 10 by 10. And the King's Chamber is 10 by 20. I thought the Ark fit in the coffer in the King's Chamber. No, no, it, it's close, but but no cigar. No, the 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 coffer, and you can only get these measurements from Peter Le Missouri. I took the X Y Z height, width, and breadth of the coffer, accurate to more than five decimals, and added all the numbers up. It's exactly one thirty fourth of the height of the Great Pyramid finished. Exact. But only with Le Missouri's numbers. I, I had to. I had to. Yeah, get but Le Missouri didn't go and measure all this stuff. Where are his sources? His sources were, were lasers. So I've got those numbers. And so the I thought his are, sources were like Petrie and those folks. Um, I have to double check in his book. I would think I, they were ancient sources. You know, I don't think Le Missouri's book. Well, the way you do your math is you you have to. Okay, let's say. Well, let's take, let's not get trapped into this detail. We we tend okay. to do that. Anyway, it's the, interesting. The thing I want to go back to Marie about is, will you be able to inside the pyramid transmit and receive for an extended period of time? Can you wander around? I, I will be able to do that. Okay, the reason uh, yes, this, I'll probably be able to do the that. reason this is important is because you'll be receiving. After you transmit, there is no way in hell <clears throat> see we're able to do that this time of night that a radio wave of either four thirty two or one forty four point one is going to penetrate to the queen's chamber, the grand gallery, the king's chamber inside the great pyramid but no, no, way. No, no way no way so if no you way. record responses in the pyramid oh, to your yeah. transmission, it means it has to be hyper dimensional torsion field manipulation of the circuitry and the speaker of the radio. It'd be absolute proof because yeah. there's no way a radio wave will get in there. It won't penetrate. Not those frequencies. Nope. No, no, nothing will. So nothing we need to, so, so Maria, you need to make a note. We need to actually think carefully where you're going to be, what you're going to do. Cause you're going to start when you're in the Cairo environs long before you get to the plateau so we can test the idea that I measured with Robin in uh, Chichen Itza, that these pyramids, these monuments, these sacred structures are sacred because they influence consciousness over a huge area around them, like David's model yes. for the Washington Monument. Yeah, Maria, like, look at the numbers you just got. They're, they blow my mind so much, even the last number being <laughs> the number of sidereal lunar days per year, probably at the time of, of um, Stonehenge. Um, Which but, by next what, Sunday, we should be able to easily check. Because the moon yeah, is moving, yes. and we have laser measurements from NASA, courtesy of your Apollo astronauts, who set a whole bunch of laser reflectors on the moon, and there are moon bounce experiments with lasers from several major observatories all the time going on and they literally can get down to fractions of a centimeter per month of the moon moving away and then you simply reel the clock back because it's linear at that distance 
and that will tell us exactly when the moon orbited the Earth in 353 as opposed to 354. Well, 352, 352, 989 to be exact. So you got to understand, there's nobody on Earth who could think of sending your radio that number. This has to be somebody (laughs) in a hyperdimensional realm to do this because you got the number came back so fast. All these numbers came back to your radio so fast. What is the time difference between when you transmitted and you received these really bright, intense sounds on your radio? How much time did it take? Uh, no, not a lot of time. Uh, about sort of, I, I transmitted for. I'd have to go back to my notes because I wrote down all the times. So I haven't got them to hand. But it wasn't that that long time, really. No, but it's probably about ten minutes. So your response is came about ten minutes later. That's interesting. So, so there was um, a significant. This is important, David. There was a significant delay because speed of light to moon is one and a half seconds, one and a quarter seconds. So whatever we're dealing with had to receive the information, had to think about it, and then decide how to respond. That would have to be the sun, because the sun's 8 minutes and 21 seconds. It doesn't seconds. have to be anything. You know, it, it's, well, no, it doesn't, but it could be. So, Maria, that means that in, in 10 minutes, whoever sent us all these numbers figured out all this stuff in 10 minutes and sent it to us. And well, that's an active. AI. That's the galactic computer. That's the Federation Central, you know, memory alpha. It's 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 not thinking. It's deciding yeah, good... politically how to respond to these primitives that are sending very simple base information. Yeah, you're right. It could be. That's why I think be... it's important with the with the new number of uh, you know the lunar potential lunar new number i think if we can get a date on that yep, then yep. that will be very interesting won't that be fascinating okay moving moving on i know 3 hours seems like a lot it's not and i want to bring john on poor john he's so patient we're going to give him the job <laughs> we're going to give john the job award tonight okay so wrap up david come on wrap up no i'm i'm wrapped up all i can tell you now is I'm really, I, I could tell you so much about Leonardo da Vinci, Salvatore Mundi, that would blow your mind. And I, I barely scratched the surface of what I know about that painting. Well, in right? terms of the painting as a whole, why would someone point us to that painting? You know, to me, it's kind of like the Casablanca question. Out of all the gin joints in all the world, why did they pick that painting? What's the meta message? Well, it's, it's, it's the savior of the world. It's Jesus Christ, Isa Messiah. Uh, it's, it's a lot of things, but it's the fact that it, it's now at this exact moment in history could be very significant. I actually think some of the phonetics that, that are in the, the um, Morse code that Thomas Mathers presented on his slide number eight, I might see one of the earliest structures of the, of the name of Jesus in there. It might be in there. And it's, it well, wait, like wait, it wait, is. wait, wait, guys, are, aren't you detecting a trend curve here? Because remember, one of the big bugaboos of the whole UFO phenomenology going back to Roswell was a set of communications ostensibly, you know, to the deep state that aliens created human beings and created Earth's religions and ultimately were our, our creators and therefore it would destroy all organized religion on the planet 
if in fact it was made public far too soon and they wanted to delay and delay and delay and delay. These messages are locking into someone who is moving in the direction of this is who Yezu, Yahshua, Yahweh really Yezheva. was. Yezheva. Right. Yeshiva it looks like it's in his slide number eight. Yes That's not a Yezheva. trivial message if that's what they're pointing us toward. Now it doesn't mean it's real. It doesn't mean it's real. It merely means that whoever's on the other end of the phone right, is right, pointing right. us in this direction for a reason. So we have to have three-dimensional or really four-dimensional thinking. You know, we proceed down the line of interpretation, but we also critically analyze what it is we're interpreting. Okay, so you go to you go to um, Thomas's slide eight, Savasava, which is Shavasava, which is Yeshava, which is Yeshua. It says Savasava is Hishi, <laughs> Adam and Eve, because then you can also see Eve in in the middle of Shahasava. So again, that's phonetic. You have to understand, we're, we read everything in English today, thinking that that's how it sounded. But that's how it starts. The message is five, and we know what the number five means, because five times 56 is 280. So you have your 56 bluestones times five is the height of the Great Pyramid. And it begins, Shehasava is Hishi. So Yesheva, which is Sheveshava, is Hishi, so Adam and Eve. So that that could be what the first um, structural sentence. Wait, wait, wait! You mean it's giving us Genesis in the beginning? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This is if you go to Thomas's slide number eight. It, this is the exact beginning of the translation of the text. If so it's it. talking about the creation of humanity. Right. Shavasava is Hishi. Well, that's not a that, trivial point, David. You bury. I know, and it's right you, there. You, it's, you keep burying your lead. No, but it's right you, there in the beginning. Yeah, of, but you need to lead with that. Headlines are headlines for a reason. I've been thinking about this all day because Shavasheva is one of the earliest interpretations of Jesus' name. Yes, Shiva. Okay, Shiva. John, I promise we're going to devote the next Shavasheva hour and a half to you if we have to, okay? <laughs> Shavasheva is he, she, is that which is he and she, which is Adam and Eve. So you, you, you could say... It's, it's, our, it's our creation myth. Okay, uh, Thomas, yeah, Thomas, exactly. thoughts, thoughts. <laughs> Thomas, are you there? Yeah. No, I'm here. Okay. Thoughts. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's profound. Is, yeah. Is Sorry. Yeah. So, so what I'm sort of thinking, and this kind of goes back to what you were you were saying before the 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 top of the hour, is that, you know, the in terms of language in terms of you know a, a period of time when there was 353 lunar days or things like that i think that like whatever we're speaking to whether it be sort of like an ancient solid state ai whether it's the architect or if you want to call it god or if you want to call it something mm. is you know we're tap we're tapping into something very very ancient and I mean, I think that like the indications, you know, in terms of and what we're being pointed to and in terms of ancient sites, what are we, you know, some of the things that we're extracting from the information relating to ancient texts. Um, I mean, I, I just think in general, we're, 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 
we're trying to communicate with something very old. Or something that knows that about is, something very old. Because, it, because here's the thing is I think it, that like, it does, you know, uh, you, Thomas, it doesn't have to be old in and of itself and we're running out of time. So let's pick up this up. John, I will get to you as soon as possible. You know, this is this is kind of real time on the fly. Um, it's fascinating what happens when you kind of turn the spring and unusual things fall out of the closet, mixing our metaphors madly. Who are we in touch with? You know, Thomas mentioned God. I don't think it's God. No, no. I don't think it's ancient. I think it's something that knows ancient. You know, an AI would not have to be the same AI. All it had to do was pass on a program from a distant ancestor, a different earlier generation. In terms of organic beings, I mean, can you live a thousand years? Can, as an organic being, can you live 10,000 years? Can you replicate? Can you eliminate errors in the codes and all the organic biology that we think we know, which is nothing compared to what there is left yet to figure out? I think the question of who are we talking to is wide open. The fact that they're talking about our ancient heritage and when Maria's in Stonehenge, Maria, Mary, Jesus, I mean, come on, guys. Who really is at the other end of this intergalactic or hyper-dimensional phone? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't you dare touch that dial. Because remember, Jonathan found human voices in the mix just tonight. We shall return.
Talk Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. You know, there's an old cliche. Many are called, but few answer the phone. Well, somebody to our call has answered the phone repeatedly, again and again and again. And instead of nonsense numbers and random stuff and noise and static and, you know, anything else the skeptics might want to throw at this, they've been giving us for the last two months an increasingly in-depth set of messages, of nested messages, which now seem to be converging on two things, if I can kind of, you know, bring a gestalt out of our conversation so far tonight. One is the two prime characters in the Western creation mythology of human beings, Adam and Eve. And the other is Jesus, the great redeemer, the savior of humankind. Remember, there's a whole contingent of, of uh, thought, biblical, evangelical, fundamental thought now, that we're in the end times and the world needs a savior, a redeemer, a messiah. Is it possible that whoever was picked up the phone when we made that phone call is trying to tell us either something about the background to that current developing philosophy or is it ultimately building up to appearing, preparing to appear as the modern Messiah himself? I mean, these are not trivial questions, but that's what happens when you make intergalactic or hyper-dimensional phone calls. Okay, John, you're up, because you've got some amazing stuff. I want you to take as much time as you need. Dennis is waiting in the wings. Uh, Part of your role tonight, Dennis, is to take in everything you're hearing. So when you come online during Maria's experiment, you have a background in just how damn important it is that we have your station online. So, John, take it away. Okay. Uh, my first item is just an aside to one of your items, Richard, from a couple of weeks ago. Okay. This was uh, the, the week after you posted your Tonga Dice image. I saw an article online about this a high-speed railway they're building outside of London, and they uncovered a Roman uh, burial site, and one of the items was a dice, and I said, boy, that looks a lot like Richard's Tonga picture. So I just wanted to add that in there. Now, as far as uh, the signals we're getting, Friday night, just two nights ago, I sat down to listen to one of your recordings, Richard, and uh, it was a Stonehenge transmission, uh, 12.59 p.m., 4.32 is what it's labeled. So I approach these different than you do, Richard. I approach it. Well, hang on. Let me give you a little with... background. The reason it's 12.59 is because I wanted 
to do an hour of pre-record before Marie was going to be in the monument and begin her first transmission, which my time was 1 a.m. So I started, uh, I I did two half hours uh, from 12 to 12.30 and 12.30 to 12.59. And then I started the, what I thought was going to be her transmission period, I started at 12.59. So that's that's the file, the tape that you were looking at not knowing at the time that she actually began transmitting about 15 minutes earlier. So my second half hour pre-transmission period encompasses when she got to the Aubrey, uh, or, 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 or I presume, and Maria will correct me, but you were moving toward the monument and you keyed your first transmission uh, well outside the center, right? Yes, yes. Okay. John, continue. That's please. correct. Okay. So in item two, if you click on that, you can see what um, this is what I'm looking at when I open the file. I don't have any preconceived notions at this point. I'm just going really by intuition. And the first thing I did was click in this area where I've circled in yellow with a numeral one. It's about eight minutes into the recording, and I just clicked on it and started listening. And I listened to about a minute, minute and a half of it, and the first thing I noticed is what Tom noticed, too. He mentioned last night is, I heard this extra harmonic. Hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. What is that? I'm like, oh, are they sending me some whale song or something? Oh, man. So, so, and then I thought, all right, I want to listen to a chunk of this. So I look at this... Um, on, on the right side, you, this, you see where I circled in yellow this big block of info. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll start listening. Which is listed as number two. Number two. And uh, I'm like, okay, that's a nice block of info. And then, uh, well, in number three, I circled in purple. You can see these three, uh, you know, notches in there where there's no information or there's, there's a break in the information. I go, oh, you know, I'll start at this first notch. But wait, how are we That's... interpreting the graphs? I see pale green, then I see vertical gray lines. What are we looking at? Well, when you're zoomed out like this, those in number three, you see those notches. That, that shows where there's a break in the information. And... I don't know how else other to explain it, but the, uh, the top, the green is the uh, amplitude waveform and the bottom is the Hertz waveform. And so I thought I'd start listening around, you know, at this first notch in number three, that first red arrow is pointing to it. And it's around the 20 minute mark. And I thought, oh, that's about 10 minutes. You know, the, I'll listen for about 10 minutes. So I click on that little empty notch there. And that's my item. Let me see. Where am I? Oh, I just closed the way. Um, the next image in my items, I have to reopen up the website here. Hold on. That would be number three, right? Where it says notch B, 1947 no, notch B. Yes. Let me go right back. I just accidentally closed the windows. Let me get back there. Been there okay, notch there. A. Yeah, notch B, yes. Item three, 
if you click on that. Now I've zoomed in, and you can see this is the same waveform. And here's that empty space. And I noticed in the, the time code that it says, it's in like the bottom left area of this image. It says 19.47.595. Oh, no, now that's interesting. That, that's weird. I've heard that number before, Richard. You know? <laughs> yeah, so have I. So you're saying that I, I began this recording at an arbitrary time. No one could have known. I didn't know when I was going to begin it. But right. 19.47 minutes into when I pushed record, there's a gap. The yeah. transmissions are on the left, proceeding from left to right. Then there is at 19.47 minutes, there's a gap, and then the transmissions pick up again. Like someone uh, deliberately inserted, yes? Uh, partially correct. That, well, there is a gap, but there's also a signal right at this spot. So in this same image, you can see I added a yellow arrow on the bottom right uh, because I ran a quick frequency scan. I don't see and an arrow. I don't see a it. yellow arrow in the I don't bottom see right? It. No, no, no. Overall frequency? Um, no, there's no yellow arrow on mine. Yes, item, item number three. I'm I'm item on number, number three. three. Yep. It's one nine one nine four seven notch B. Oh, it's way, way over. I have to scroll way over. Okay. 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 Down, down, not on the graph, but on the data block to the far right. Yes. Well, you need to describe yeah. that. You know, it's not on the oh, graph. I... We're looking at the graphs. So, all right. Okay. So on the data block, you've got an yeah, arrow that says overall, overall frequency. Overall frequency, yes. And what does not that mean? 432, but it's 4032. Yeah, which... You drop out the zero, so it's it's more you code. You drop out the zero. And, and, I, and if you look under that, it says By the way, this, this same note. the same non-decimal code where you can move decimal places and drop out zeros appears in the measurements of the crop circles over and over and over again. So my tentative hypothesis, we're talking to whoever has been doing crop circles for the last 20, 30, 40, maybe since the 1600s. Yes, and you'll also notice it says overall musical note because as you play this back, that changes as the playhead moves from left to right. And, you know, the sound changes that you're hearing, you will hear the, the next overall musical note might be A, that kind of thing. Right. All right, so now we're going to move on to the next image here. Uh, sorry. Do we want number four? Uh, number four, yes. Okay, not C. So, these these next few pictures, I'm just zooming in, and I wanted the listeners to see kind of where how I'm arriving to this. Um, oh, look you know, at how first, the amplitudes are all like Thomas said. It's incredibly constant amplitude. Yeah, they're pretty close. They're pretty close. And then I zoom in again in image number five. Are we getting closer? Now you can see as you zoom in, you really see the structure of Five. this waveform. Oh my. You know, the, the, the green, that's the amplitude waveform, and the bottom is the, the hertz. So now you start to see the structure coming out. And I zoom in again, which would be image number six. 
Got it. Now I'm zoomed in all the way. You can see there the individual units or frames. And this is what the signal, you've got this peak followed by a trough, and then it kind of peaks again mm -hmm. and sort of levels off. And um, I just thought that was interesting because I went back, I backtracked and look at... And it straddles 19.47 minutes from when I started recording, which means someone is reading my mind. And I couldn't find it on the other from like December 24th and this is the only place I found it was on this recording. Oh, that's intriguing. Yeah. Hmm. Now let's see image number. Well, the next thing is, do you find it on any other recordings? And of course you haven't had time to go through them, but you chose mine first. I'd obviously go look at Maria's. I don't know whether, whether uh, she yeah. has enough data recorded to straddle this time, but certainly Michael, you know, because Michael, according to Thomas, am I right, Thomas? Michael's data and mine look like they really overlap a lot. Well, it's the 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 overall just structure, like how it sounds, um, like the behavior is is similar. I mean, again, it's not that we could overlap uh, one signal on top of the other to basically do like you know a hundred percent accurate correlation. But the behavior, if you listen to and you and in um, uh, Michael's video, you're actually watching the radio doing the behavior um, is is I mean very very similar sounding mm -hmm. to what is happening with your radio. So that's why I said that there's and then we have you know, David's recording. So David, have you looked at nineteen point four seven from the beginning of your recordings? If not, no, I haven't. Could. I haven't done. I haven't. I, I haven't put my recordings into an editing bay and looked at. The See, time the reason time. this number is important for those folks who are late to the party is nineteen point four seven is kind of the emblematic number that says hyperdimensional physics. It's the circumscribed tetrahedron in the sphere, in the planet, in the sun, in the stars. It's part of the uh, geometry laid out of Sidonia. It's it's manifested in a berry. There are two. Uh, there used to be two ancient circles. And Maria, correct me if I say something wrong. And they were tilted. Uh, they were they were touching, as I understand, made of stones. So you had two circles that were tangent to each other, and they were tilted off due north by 19.5 degrees. Yes, but they weren't touching. The, there was a gap in between oh, okay. the two in the stone circles. Okay. okay. But yeah, that really struck me as amazing many, many years ago when I discovered that. So this number, again, is not random, and it's kind of like a message to me, given that I'm known as uh, Richard Hoagland as also Mr. 19.5. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Oh, I heard you say 19.5 in the Art Bell days, and it was, and and here it is, here, it's right here. Here it is, coming here from is. somebody uh, out there. Oh well, it's nice to be. All right, well, let's skip over. They're saying they know you personally, Richard. This is what they're saying. Well, maybe, maybe. Let's not get too carried away. Okay, John, please continue. Perhaps. Yeah, you, you have to fight for uh, airtime on the show. You may have noticed. <laughs> All right, we can skip over. Uh, I just zoomed in all the way. Um, 
so that it, if anybody's interested in seeing the full zoom, uh, I have the full zoom amplitude waveform there for so you. So what, at what are the little green dots on the wavy line? Uh, that's one frame. So that's a sample. So, that's a, that's the digital pixel sample. Correct. Of the frequency. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Moving on. All right, so let's go down to um, image nine and, and image ten. Are just showing that um, originally, as I said, I heard this extra harmonic, and I've got whales on the brain. So I thought, I wonder if that has any relation to that. And I'm going to this coming week. I'll I'll make some time to explore that, and I'll slow it down a bit, um, adjust the pitch accordingly, and. And last time, uh, Tom and I, you know, we played it backwards to see what it sounded like and, and that sort of thing. So I'll repeat that um, on this recording because it has this extra harmonic that it it's not there in the December recordings. This mm. is the first time I've heard this. And it's something's been added is my feeling. So Well, something I'm, meaningful. Be, yeah. Okay. And then uh, let's see, number 11, you can skip that. I, I, I mentioned before, I went and backtracked to other files to see if there was any 19.5. And as you can see, it's, it's just blank all around the 19.5. I could not find, oh, I looked at several other files and there, how that interesting. area is blank, yeah. And then um, today uh, I'm listening to a file, Richard, you sent me, this is, a file that you took the 24 hours after Maria was in Stonehenge. Yeah, I, right? I, I, I deliberately remember I've been having problems recording because every time I set up to record, the damn thing stops doing anything. It's like it doesn't want me to record. Well, I found a way, Thomas, around that. And David, I, I tipped the radio over so the antenna is horizontal and I rotate it in azimuth and I get it to where it's playing and then I hook up the recording system and by jiggling the azimuth just a little bit, I can make it work so that we'll record, which means I'm getting background data on the hyperdimensional intergalactic channel that's not obviously meant for us. It's just kind of background chatter, like you're on a party line, an old-fashioned country party line where there were like 15 families on one phone line, and you listen for your ring before you'd pick up. And, of course, everybody would eavesdrop on everybody else. <laughs> That's why they call it a party line. And it made for some very interesting community conversation at the Grange or at the dances or at the clubs or whatever. Anyway, so I got recordings and I was able to do one at about 3.30 in the morning, wee hours in the morning on Saturday after we'd done the show um, Saturday night. And so this is like Sunday morning, Saturday I actually don't remember. I have to go back and look at the log. The point is it was about 24 hours after Maria had, in terms of my time, been there and gone from Stonehenge. And I figured that any response by then would have decayed away and it would be just the background chatter. So I recorded the background, about an hour of it. And when I get off the show tonight, I'm going to do it again to see if the background normal traffic either references what we're doing or we're looking at some other conversation or data transfer. I mean, I have no idea what I recorded, 
but John called me up all very excited earlier tonight before the show, and he said, you'll never guess what I heard. I heard a woman's voice. <laughs> I sure did. Uh, let's jump down to, um, I forgot two images, number 16 and number 17. And this was me listening to this extra harmonic that I think might have something to do with whales. So here's a picture of the Hertz wave, and you can see this extra harmonic. I call this, for lack of a better term, uh, a ladder. And you can see these what look like ladders spaced through as you go left to right. Okay. Uh, for, now, along the top, you have the timeline. So you can see we're looking at a range from like 20 minutes in to Richard's recording. Uh, this is the one done it, about a day after the Maria yes. experiment. Okay. So this is just to show you that um, this is what I will be trying to isolate out of the overall signal so that we can hear it better and, and you know, slow it down and, and that kind of thing. But you can see that it creates this, this particular Hertz wave that looks, reminds me of a when ladder. When you say Hertz wave, what do you, what do you mean, Hertz wave? Hertz waveform. This is the waveform. People don't know what Hertz waveforms are. Explain. Uh, uh, this is a frequency analysis. Okay. And it, it's showing the, the range of frequencies. In terms of cycles per second, which is a hertz. Cycles per second. Yeah, one right. hertz is a cycle per second. Okay. Yep. And then number what, 17. What, wait, wait, wait. Before we get off what? number 17, you've got two graphs. You've got a top, which is a green line that does some yep. wonderful spiky geometric stuff. And below that, you've got an intensity plot that basically probably the color corresponds to the loudness of the, of the sound, right? Yeah, are you looking at uh, item 16? Uh, 17, the close-up. 17, yes, the close-up, 17. Yes. So in, in, the, the relationship. in the green line plot, what's the vertical axis? The vertical axis, you see these spikes. This is the amplitude modulation. So okay, so you it's can the loudness. Where it spikes. Yeah, oh. this is the loudness. Okay, so it spikes and then there's a decay, decay. almost linear, and then it yep. falls, then it comes back up, yep. rises at an angle, then falls yep. again, comes back up, and then resumes the center line, which I presume is uh, background noise. So in 17, when I zoom in, you can see like where the playhead is at the 2051 mark. Um, you have this ladder structure and just a little past that you, I mean, this stuff kind of stands out to you after a while, but, um, well, what yeah, is the, what is the vertical axis on the colored plot? The orange, yellow, Violet. Uh, this is the frequency range again. Going vertically? Vertically, yes. Um, so it's, right, you can see the scale of frequency that uh, we're looking at. Where is the scale? I don't see the scale. Oh, it's over, way over on the right. Okay. So the yeah, I have it so the image just fills my screen. It's not over scanned on the screen. I just well, it is on the, on, the, on the website. It is so. 
Oh, okay. Um, anyway, you can see this ladder structure where this harmonic is happening. And like I said, that's where it, so it shows up. You can look for it. And but what will, is there a, is there a specific mathematical significance to these harmonics, if that's what they are? I don't know. I like I said, I've got whales on the brain, and I'm thinking forget the whales. No, no, down and... forget the whales. There, there's <laughs> ratio in here. That's so what I'm looking can... at. I think ratios. I think you're looking at ratios, and you're going up. I see on your scale, you're you're going past 18 kilohertz. So that's just like the data that Thomas Mathers got, he went up to 22 kilohertz. And it seems like there is a, a pattern of ratio here. But you, all you have to do to do your ratio is decide what is the value of one. What is And, and that would be the smallest unit. And, reference, yeah. Yeah, what is your – but even your – they almost look like golden ratio. I mean, you can calculate – They do kind of like – and it's a very short period of time – uh, like for only a few seconds. Yes. Can you interpret well, that? The thing is, yeah, well, the other thing is, is that like if you take a look, it's it's at a very, very, very faint sort of level. What I'd like to be able to do, I'm trying to go back on my notes here to see if those line up with the remember the identified yeah, spike. Yeah. That we that and we, we are coming to the to top of the hour, so let's mm-hmm. all hold it there. This is so cool. Does anybody have any idea how super cool this is? Because we're talking to some kind of extraterrestrial intelligence that is knowing things that not one in ten million, if that, contemporary people, even in the so-called deep state, unless there's a whole dedicated program designed to spoof what we're trying to do, which I highly doubt. So whoever is giving us this information is encoding it at deeper and deeper and richer and richer levels. And we haven't even begun to decode everything they've sent us. And a week from this afternoon, we're going to do it again. And I guarantee you, we're going to get something that will blow everybody's minds. So when we come back, we're going to talk to John about the voices. And I've got a file. I can play them. We're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. 
listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. The Witching Hour. It is now midnight here in the Land of Enchantment. At, uh, I don't remember what our latitude is, but it's none of the appropriate latitudes that one would think you'd find in these frequencies. I mean, this is just so absolutely mind-blowing, sock-losing, amazing. Because we're, we're basically casting you know, cosmic bottles into the cosmic ocean to, to crib heavily from Carl. And what we're getting back are messages that are meaningful, coherent, pointing us in the direction of creation, humanity's origins, humanity's salvation in one of the great global religions. Who are we talking to? So this afternoon or this evening, John starts listening to my post-Maria transmission period, which was like 24 hours after uh, uh, she did her thing. And he came up with something that is really amazingly intriguing, which is voices. So kind of describe in detail uh, how you tripped over this and then what you did after you called me and how you created the file, and then we'll play the file, okay? Sure. Uh, I opened up the file, and if you go to my items 11A, and it's labeled Power Down. So I have this file. It's uh, about an hour and ten minutes long, I guess. And the most interesting feature is this empty gap at the uh, 28 minutes into the recording. So I click on that and zoom in a bit. And yeah, there's a pretty big gap there. And I, I think I said to you, Richard, it looks like you turn your radio off, Richard. What? And you say, no, sometimes it just stops recording. Or... No, it so, doesn't stop recording. It stops transmitting. You know, or trans- it, just, it just goes yeah. black. The, yeah. the lights go off. The screen goes dark. You know, I'm listening to the computer. I don't hear anything. Um, it's just dead. It's dead, Jim. It's dead. And what I noticed is to the left of this gap. And if you if you look at the timeline along the top of the image, you have 27 minutes, and I guess it would be 27 minutes and about 47 seconds. You can see a stack, this jumps out to me, um, of red hash marks up and down, like they're stacked on top of each other going from bottom to top. So 
I don't know if I explained that right, but like if you put the playhead at 27 minutes and about 47 seconds, you can see there's these red hash marks that uh, go up and down. I thought, boy, that's interesting. I haven't seen that before. You mean those so, little, those little, they look like dots. Yeah, when you say hash yeah, marks. Yeah, I see them. Yeah. They're not lines. They're discrete little, like little. Well, when, when you zoom in, they become hash marks, I guess. But yeah. They're, well, on this scale, they look like dots spaced vertically up okay. at one particular time. And you compare those with your frequency line on the right again. All right, so if you go to the next image, channel mode waveform. Well, I zoomed in, and then I played it, and I heard a woman's voice. And at first I thought she was saying heaven or seven, and then I listened again. It sounded like feather or maybe weather. <laughs> Maria, yeah. someone's sympathizing with you. <laughs> So I yeah. went looking, I checked the first 27 minutes of this recording to see if this woman's voice, you know, you can just kind of scan right through it and see if you see these hash marks anywhere. They're not there. So I scanned forward and I get up to about 50 minutes in, 49 minutes and 50 seconds. 55 seconds, according to Bond. 55 seconds. Yeah. So this first yellow arrow, this is a woman's, it's a recorded voice. It's a woman's human voice. And she is saying, uh, gosh, I forget what the first one is. You hear her say something. Um, I can't even remember now. I've, this is like 20 minutes after the earlier one, which said feather, you think, or weather. Yeah, this is 20. I go, oh, here it is again. Let me listen to this. And sure enough, you hear a voice. So as the playhead moves left to right, you're going to hear in this recording, which is 48 seconds, and it covers this image that we're looking at. Just imagine the playhead playing from left to right, and it would take about 48 seconds to hear. You'll hear the first arrow where she says something. And I'm thinking she says power down or I, I can't even remember now. But when you get to the second arrow around John, 50. No, note to sell for future, write things down when you're talking to the world on global radio. Well, I did write things. them down for these others. It's not that distinct in the first one. So I didn't, you know, I didn't want to write it down. I don't want to put ideas in people's head. But then – when you go forward to the other arrows, it's so clear. It's in the background, but it's clear as day. It's it's like the on the phone when you hear, press item two for customer service. Mm -hmm. So here she, the first one she says, oh, and the other thing too is earlier when I heard this feather or weather, you know, before it, you hear these beeping tones and it reminds me and I've not heard this in any of the clicks and, you know, from December or any of this, this is something new and it's beeps and it sounds like computer operations. Like on, you know, you'd hear at NASA or something. Hmm. So same thing. You're going to hear the woman say something at this first arrow and then you see some other hash marks here. The, so should we beeps. play it? And we don't give people 
we don't leave their their impressions. We just play it and he, let's see what they hear. Okay. Yeah, and these other four arrows are where she is talking. Okay, so we've got now. we've got a panel. We've got men and women. They're in various places around the continent, other continents, uh, different background, different uh, you know all that. So let's play it, and then we'll we'll come back and we'll talk about what we think this person, woman, says, beginning a day after Maria went through her trials and tribulations in the center of Stonehenge. Okay. I heard test frequencies. I I know exactly what it is. Channel mode and frequency mode is what she said. She's saying frequency mode. That's actually your bouncing radio. It's the radio, but it shouldn't have been Uh, doing that. Why? No, it does that. It it does do that. That is the radio. It's nothing. It's not part of a transmission. It is the Baofeng radio. It actually does. No, no, no. What I'm asking, because the only, only time I hear it do that is when I turn it on. And That's it, true. It never it, does it afterwards. And it, the other recorded message is when the battery is low, another voice will come on and say, you know, low voltage or low battery or something. And that's your warning to put it on the charger. But I've never heard... With the radio just sitting, you know, listening to chirps in the distant background, that pre-recorded, probably an AI voice in the radio. So something is triggering in the radio, in the circuitry of the radio, a mode it should not be able to switch to. You follow me? Mm. Yeah. So it's some kind of outside interference reaching into the guts of the circuitry of the radio and triggering as a side effect this pre-recorded stored message in the radio. Which is almost as good as picking up real human speech. Because well, none the of thing this... Is that if you t- yeah, if you take a look at the, the, the images um, that he posted, I mean, like you see that it sort of drops off. So... Potentially, the the power of the circuitry um, sort of went kind of off and on. But yeah, I do I do think that it's it's an unusual um, you know unusual behavior. Um, yeah, the, so that's this this was in the 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 last batch of files that you that you had, uh, sent. That's to me. the one I sent. That was you all have the same file. It's an hour long. Yeah. It's about a yeah. gigabyte, and it was taken a day after, give or take an hour or two of Maria's transmission the previous uh, morning. It was three-ish my time. Her her transmissions were like, you know, one o'clock, uh, 1 a.m. my time. So 
So it's within two hours of 24 hours after she did her thing in Stonehenge. If you turn the volume up on that too, folks, you can you can really hear the the woman say. Oh, as soon as I heard it, I knew I knew exactly what it was. But see, it's it's not that is pre-stored information in digital form in the memory in the computer memory of this little radio, which yeah. is very sophisticated to to store that. And there's a whole bunch of other codes that are in there. Why it's triggering that? is really weird. I mean, it shouldn't, yeah. should not be triggering that. And it's not, it's not full-throated. It's very, very, very faint, which means it's kind of like leakage. Keith, what do you think? Keith? I guess he's not, he has to monitor something. No, I've heard I'm my here. radio do that. I've heard my radio do that. Hmm. It's supposed to do that, but if you push the blue button, go from frequency mode to channel mode. Yeah, but I didn't. I do, I, this was literally sitting there recording while I'm doing something else, and I come back in about an hour because I don't want to put more than a gig because I can only send two gigs through WeTransfer without paying an arm and a leg. So I want to keep the files to about one gig, which is an hour, a very high sampling rate, very high quality. Tom is going to test for that. So I, I don't sit there and listen to the whole hour. So this happened when I was nowhere near the radio or the computer, et cetera. And it does repeat about two and a half minutes after this. It, it does it again. You hear the beep, spoop, beep, beep. And she says channel mode and frequency mode and channel mode. and So very interesting well, the simplest hypothesis is something is triggering the presets in the radio. The question is why and how. And they should well, be a lot louder than they were. Oh, yeah, they should be blaring forth. Exactly. But, I mean, it's, yeah, they're normally really loud. You can hear it when your radio does that. Yeah. But, I mean, I think it's, it's, probably, it's probably some type of leakage. I mean, I think the other thing that I noticed is that in these, these – um, recordings compared to the ones in December. Um, and this is where I think, you know, really, you know, I think our focus on the, on the actual pattern of, of the clicks at this point is probably where we should be still concentrating the attention because I did notice that there seemed to be. Well, let me interrupt because I think David's frequency analysis is incredibly important. I mean, out of that, we literally got where we want to reel back the orbit of the moon to when it was an even number of 352.9 days and see if that overlaps with the conventional radiocarbon dating of phase one of Stonehenge. Yeah, I think it just comes down to it comes down to a question of, of bandwidth. So, I mean, what do you mean? If, if, well, if you're encoding information into the tones, which is what we did in, in putting together the initial frequency that was transmitted out uh, with the mathematical ratios, uh, Latin long, longitudes, uh, frequency sweeps. We're, we're, we're focusing on the frequency characteristic of sound, uh, um, not so much amplitude. Um, these on and off kind of, this, the on and off behavior is something that kind of sharpened in, in, these, in these recordings. So I think there's information contained in, in both, but the, 
the well remember what i said earlier on when we started doing this as i saw it way back in december we have information that's encoded like a a russian egg or a chinese puzzle box a signal within a signal within a signal and you're looking at the envelopes in terms of dots and dashes in morse david is looking at the frequency structure contained within the dots and dashes and um, John is looking at the visual display of the waveforms and how they are so radically different than their background environment. So we've got three parallel separate analyses. I think we should proceed with all three because, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We're getting real good data from looking at this from multiple angles. Yeah, those those are the three dimensions of where information can be contained within what we're looking at, right? Yep. So you've got the frequencies, you've got the patterns of of the, and then the the third one being, you know, what John's kind of looking at, where you're able to sort of have a better visual representation of any type of a harmonic, right? Well, those so sawtooth because, those sawtooth waveforms are totally not natural. Totally, well, no, totally, but totally. I, but. But with my experience with working with audio, I mm-hmm. 100% can tell you, without even listening to it, that that's coming from a digital source. So that's, that's, that's a behavior that's being initiated by the radio. So that's why in, in those ones, yes, you know, there's, a, there's some frequencies that, that David's been able to. Because, David, I don't think you, you went through any of these particular recordings um, looking for Oh, specific- just Maria's. I just looked just at Maria's. Well, you looked at yours. And then I looked at mine. Yeah, but I haven't gone yeah. through all of mine yet. I, I, I got one number the same as Maria's in the beginning, which is the circumference of the Aubrey, you know, stone circle. Yeah, which, which is, is hitting us over the one. head. Come on. Which, is, which hits you over the head right in the beginning. <laughs> but, and, I, and I'm looking at accurate to two decimals, whereas I don't see digital information yet that is accurate to two decimals. So we need some way to analyze the digital. And once you can see digital accurate to two decimals. Well, wait, 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 wait. Can... Just, just play my digital recordings through the speakers, through any speaker. Oh, I know. But you've got, like you said, an hour at a time. That, that would be um, a huge project to undertake that and look at your recordings on the audio and see what shows up on my meter that would be interesting to do for sure. But you're recording and I'm getting phenomenal numbers. Like Maria's recording is really short. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. very long. And look at all the numbers I got in that tiny space. I got all these freaking incredible. And I've got more numbers than that. I've got, um, I've got North latitudes that run right through England and Ireland as well. But I don't have longitudes because longitudes are – in that part of the world, they're they're less than the number five. They could be even zero. Like it's like zero and one run right through it, right? So that means the radio can't put out numbers that low. I can't even do the square or 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 you know the number one times pi. Like for example, if I go on Google Earth, Earth Google right now, and I look at um. um I look at Stonehenge, I'm at 51, I'm converting to, you know, digital because I'm not using degrees, minutes, and seconds. And I go to Stonehenge, 
Um, okay, I don't want to get trapped in these numbers again because I want to go back to John. Um, we've cleared up the mystery, and we've opened a new one. Something is triggering as a faint background overlay information stored in the radio. Now, was that an accidental trigger because of what they're sending, or was it a deliberate trigger, and how do we determine which? Mm, good questions. Well, I think, I, I, I think look, in, in general, what, we're, what we've noticed from the very beginning of all of this is that we're eliciting some type of an odd behavior of the radios. We're now duplicating. <laughs> you think? We're now duplicating. We're now duplicating. We're duplicating I'm, let me tell you, tonight after John called, I put the radio next to me on the couch, and I oriented it, you know, horizontal, and I moved it so that, uh, you know, it was clicking away. And then I, I sat down, and if I raised my right hand, to about uh, a foot off the couch, it would stop. If I put my hand back down, it would start up again. If I move my hand toward it, <clears throat> it would stop. If I continue to move my hand toward it, it would start up again. I could hover over it. I could move my hand to the front, to the antenna, and, or the back, and then the front to the antenna. I put it back in my lap. It stops. It acts like it's a conscious little being that knows I'm there. And I'm telling you, when the mice run over it, which they have on occasion, doesn't do a damn thing. So it's not a warm body, you know, capacitance induction thing. It has something to do with my, my field, my hyperdimensional field, my, my, my con- you know, you would say an aura. You know, Maria, come come and help me on this, okay? Yes, I mean, uh, you're talking about, you know, your energy fields, aren't you, with mental yeah. and torsion field? Yeah. I think it's, uh, I'm, I haven't received your email with that attachment in, but if you could resend that, I'll take a look at it. But certainly when people go to these sites... Wait, 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 I sent, I sent that this afternoon. You should have gotten it this afternoon. Yeah, I've got it. That's bizarre. Yes. You got it or you don't have it? No, I haven't uh, got it. No, I don't have it. All right. Let me go and look at my scent file as we're doing real-time radio. Because, all right, it's it's actually the same image, which is my number five in radio with pictures. Okay. I'll, I'll take a look. I mean, if I can, if I can sort of pipe in here, Richard. I mean, I think, you know, what the takeaway from all of the analysis and from what I would sort of gather as being a a leveling up of the sophistication of some type of messaging that we're sort of seeing. Um, you know, I think what would be kind of interesting is maybe uh, is Dennis still on the on 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 the call here? Yeah, you know, Dennis is going to get the Job Award. We're going to bring Dennis on at the bottom of the hour. So. Yeah, so I think what would be sort of in, interesting, just as he's kind of getting sort of caught up to speed with sort of what we've done in the last couple of weeks here, is, um, you know, sort of go over again for maybe people that are just kind of tuning in so that they understand what kind of message we're sending out, what frequencies we're sending this out on, 
and and then the, the the locations and why we sort of think that these are you know operating as natural amplifiers for for the signal going out and what we hope to to kind of you know get from it. I'm I'm definitely very interested to sort of listen from um, Dennis because this will be a, a secondary site for us to be. Uh, to be attempting this, but um, for the people listening out there, I mean, the the signal that we sent out uh, when this started, before I was involved with the project, there was a variety of information that was sent through a through a high powered antenna, um, and then all this behavior and this information started um, sort of being recorded, and that's when I caught wind of the the project and Richard got in touch with me and and you know was able to sit down and sort of analyze some of that preliminary information and we were able to find some interesting things uh, regarding that so when the subsequent uh, transmission date was selected and uh, Maria was going to have the opportunity to be able to go and do this from Stonehenge uh, we wanted to kind of ramp up and be able to really in a quantitative way um, encode certain information into a signal and how would we go about doing that so what we had noticed from the earlier transmissions was that there seemed to be information that was coming through if you were taking a look at the numbers of the of, of the the frequencies um, and these numbers were correlating to very in, interesting mathematical um, you know, and, and David's done his his whole analysis in previous sort of episodes. So we wanted to kind of build upon that and then put together a signal that wouldn't take too long to send out. Uh, we don't want this to be something where you've got to send this out over the course of a half an hour or something. So we sort of decided that about three to four minutes was a good length of time for a transmission to be sent out from these sites. And then we started the process of in including a whole bunch of different types of information. And as we're going through this, what we're trying to do is take some of the things that we've learned or oddities that we've seen in the transmissions that have come in, be able to interpret that in some way, incorporate that into the signal, and then try to build upon this. And what we're trying to establish is basically some type of a communication protocol so that we can um, begin to put together some form of, of understanding or logic and, and hopefully be able to receive some type of a message with, with uh, a very clearly defined sort of intelligence, even though I would say at this point there's some numbers and there's some things that are popping out that are definitely showing intelligence. You know, I think, you know, if we were able to be able to interpret some type of like a, a message or something would be, you know, ground, groundbreaking. So, um, you know, what we're, you know, the takeaway of, of yesterday's show and, and today's show is that, um, and certainly after the conversation that David and I had this afternoon, um, it's definitely important for us to, to try to be, you know, working with some type of a, uh, a text encoding. So, you know, we've gravitated towards Morse, we're going to work around that, incorporate some elements to be able to define some type of a, uh, again, a communication protocol or uh, like a codex that we can put into the signal. And then this is what Dennis and Maria are both going to be uh, transmitting outwards. And the process of this is that we're transmitting it outwards and then we're listening and there's more points than there is transmission. Again, the big takeaway from the last round of, of analysis is that we do see similarities in the behavior of the radios. We know that this behavior is not uh, normal for the radios. This seems to be sort of an interesting oddity based off of the frequencies that we're transmitting on and that we're listening to. And 
this is what we're sort of building on and, and this is really the 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 effort with this grassroots project is to be able to just at least try <laughs> i think you know in the in the music business uh people would always kind of ask you as an artist and go you know what is your one one sort of uh, suggestion or or word of advice and the one thing that i was told and i you know took this to heart in my career and i've told this to other people the the point where most people fail and really and you can translate this to anything is the fact that so many people just don't even take that first step and try to do something or just to go through and see something through okay you know they'll talk about doing something but they'll never go through and do it and i think at a real sort of base level that's what we're trying to do here <laughs> i mean yeah you know, we all come from different backgrounds we're all in different places around the world but what's brought us together is this desire to you know try to peer into the unknown and and you know that's basically the whole emphasis and the whole drive behind this, this effort and why we're trying to incorporate a little bit of a scientific method um, to this so that we can try to get the attention and attract other people to that may have sort of ideas or suggestions or input of any kind of sort um, to to feel open enough to shoot off an email to Richard and say hey look at you know have you guys thought about this or hey you know I I have this type of an interpretation and as we gather more evidence and we gather more data and there's more people that jump on board with this and it's being done in a in a way that's that's um, you know conducive for people wanting to participate and not feel too uh, uh, intimidated to do so. That's all we're trying to do. Trying we're in some break time right now. Yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> it'd be nice to have some warning. I was looking for this photograph. Hey, um, we're kind of, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we should probably do something like this. Let me do this and this, and then we'll do that. And we shall return if I can make something play here. Oh, now my computer is acting up. Somebody's unhappy. There we are. You're on the other side of midnight. It's the bottom of the hour. One half hour left to go. We'll get back to John, and then we're going to bring on Dennis. And I'm sure Dennis has all kinds of questions and anticipation of what he's going to do when his equipment arrives and how to put it together as we expand the ET Communications Network to Stonehenge Phase 2. We shall return.
the other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour here on the other side of midnight for Sunday night, Monday morning from the Land of Enchantment. We have an extraordinarily interesting panel. We have pioneers, analysts, experts in ancient languages, uh, sacred geometry, sacred frequencies, and ancient sacred sites, to name just a few. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better group to tackle what uh, Thomas was just describing. I mean, frankly, um, I think we have extraordinary results so far. And if for some reason it all came to an end tomorrow, I think that we have been brilliantly successful. But obviously it's not. And we're going to proceed with um, what's going to happen next weekend, next Sunday afternoon. Let me bring John back in to finish up uh, some of the thoughts you had which is part of your remaining items, and then we will go to Dennis. Sure. Um, I added some Star Trek images from an episode just to illustrate one possible scenario that we might be dealing with someone or something that moves very fast, a lot faster than us. They live at a much higher frequency than we do. And in this episode, you know, to these Galosians, they move very fast. And... The, the Star Trek people look like they're standing still. So that that could be one scenario that we're looking at where these people are, they exist at a much higher frequency than, than we do. But in our dimension, in 3D. You know, the only problem with that script was that if that really was reality, they would have burned up from friction, you know, instantly. <laughs> so you have to... <laughs> I, I think a much more plausible explanation is we're looking at signals coming from some other dimension, you know, where time is flowing at a different rate. Yes, correct. Um, and that's it. I'm looking forward to hearing what Dennis has oh, to Oh, super. Think. Okay, Dennis, um, uh, if you're still with us, <laughs> are you there? Dennis Stone, on mute. <laughs> Can you hear me okay? Yes, there you are. Uh, my heart doesn't, doesn't stand that. It's like, you know, you go to plan B and plan B is not there. Uh, Dennis is the owner and director and executive producer of the American Stonehenge site in New, New Hampshire. It's been in his family for decades. He has spearheaded a whole bunch of 
of very interesting scientific endeavors to map out its physical dimensions, its ages. For people who are new to uh, what you represent, give us a kind of a five-minute thumbnail sketch of what is America's Stonehenge and why are you in the position to, to provide some additional corollary evidence to this uh, multi-ancient site transmission experiment that we're in the middle of? Well, we've been doing research for uh, about 65 years on the site with my family, and it actually began in 1937, the very first research. So we've been in it for many, many decades, as you mentioned, and my granddaughter now is like the fourth generation. She's about a year and a half old, and she's over there almost every day. But, yeah, we're using uh, different types of technology. Over the years, we use radiocarbon dating, particle acceleration-type uh, dating. Um, we've done survey on the astronomical alignment starting in 1973, although the work began in 1965. And we had the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. They took the uh, computer, uh, I should say the survey data, put it into a computer in 1977, 78 over that winter, and we got the results back that the alignments would work about 1800 B.C. due to the Earth's tilt. And that kind of agreed with our oldest carbon dating on the main site, which is about 4,000 years. And you mentioned an earlier date a little bit earlier in the program. We do have one fire pit that out near what we call the North Stone alignment, aligns with Polaris today, and about 4,000 years ago it was aligned with Thuban in Draco, uh, which is interesting because it's a serpent or a snake, and we have walls that are shaped kind of like serpents. And mm. we're finding these same walls northeast all the way out to California, like in Weed, California. I have 110 pitches from that area with uh, wall patterns that look very similar to ours and other northeast wall patterns, but also the serpent, which is out there. Um, and so that date on that, uh, what I just mentioned near the North Stone, it didn't date the North Stone, but it was 7,400 years old. Um, and now we've been using ground penetration radar. We're using LIDAR, light detection and ranging. And we're using a new dating, uh, fairly new to us anyway. It's called optically stimulated luminescence. And I think it was developed in the 80s, but really perfected in the last 10 years. And there's about 44 um, samples that were taken from our site all the way down to Pennsylvania because there are other sites. So wait, wait, wait. Back up and describe how it works. How do you get a date? Well, from from this technology yeah, so this, uh, yeah we don't need charcoal or any organic material you just need dirt or you need stone and it does have to have potassium uh, feldspar in it quartz or mica and our our stone up here is full of that and our dirt is too that's basically what granite is composed of and so you can date this inorganic material like stone or dirt and basically what you're doing is telling pulling it out of the ground and you have to do it in a darkroom environment, and they put it through this whole process. It used to take five years to get the results. Now they're getting down to a little over a year. Mm. The University of Washington right now is doing that. Dr. Feather's out there at the University of Washington. And um, they actually, they actually I, I believe what they do is they flash it with the laser, and it gives off some sort of energy, and it tells you the last time that that dirt or rocks saw the light of day. Wow. To build a chamber that builds up next to it. You want to get a cord near the bottom of a wall or even on the roof of a chamber or a good stone specimen that has that feldspar, mica, and quartz in it. And uh, they put it through this whole process. It takes a long time. It's about $1,000 per sample. And uh, right now, between here and Virginia, I should say, there's 44 samples, 22 different locations 
And this will be published in a geological report, I believe, either April or May, and it will go into an archaeological report this summer. So we should have the actual um, final dates on this. Right now we have some preliminary dates. They have to leave a decimeter in the ground for one year to collect the radiation, and then they pull the decimeters out, they send them out to the University of Washington. So this gives you kind of a background. Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. And so ours came out last September. They were in the ground for one year because they took the samples on 9-11 uh, in 2020. Wow. And in 2021, they came back. They took these uh, dosimeters out of the ground here and across the Northeast. And um, the preliminary uncalibrated dates were all pre-contact. So in other words, before Columbus. So a lot of people in the past have said, well, these stone ruins across the Northeast and our site in particular were built by a bunch of crazy farmers or shoemakers <laughs> as a kid. Right. But we never thought that was the case. And the 12 carbon datings put it back before Columbus. And now these new optically stimulated luminescence datings seem to be uh, supporting those dates. So, uh, and, uh, you know, when using the lie, we use thermal imaging camera on the site. A gentleman has like a $13,000 drone with this uh, infrared camera with a high definition camera on top of that, too. And he's been doing some um, imaging with that, too, and that's not done yet, so we'll have to wait for that. But he can distinguish between stones. It can go down 14 inches below the surface, uh, and it can see some things that we can't maybe see with our eyes, you know. So we've been using that for the last couple of years, and he's given me some images, but he's not done with that project yet. So we're doing, using different technologies. Ma- Maria, do you know if this kind of new technology has been used at Stonehenge at all? Oh, yeah, for many years. And what are the yes, dates? for many years at m- many different sites. And what are the dates? Well, that well charcoal. Yeah, well, yeah, it's been. I think you know we've used definitely used that here. But with charcoal from a fire pit, for example, there's lots of that around the Stonehenge area. But that dates back to more like the Mesolithic period and may not have any relationship with the actual structure. Ah, yeah. Uh, but it's a very reliable. Uh, that that needs to be pointed out because there are many many different um, midden pits and things like that around Stonehenge. Um, but yes, it's a reliable dating uh, sequencing. Hmm. I'm just looking for overlap because there, there, there's a reason, Dennis, that your site is called America's Stonehenge. Talk about that a bit. And I also want to refer everyone yeah. to his section of Radio with Pictures. If you go to the tonight's guest page, remember, click on the banner at the URL. That will take you to the guest page. Look at the fast links under the banner. Click on Dennis. That will take you down to his section of the uh, uh, Radio with Pictures page. And there's a whole series of beautiful new images of details of America's Stonehenge. I haven't seen quite a few of these. These are amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah. So 1958, we opened to the public as Mystery Hill Caves. And the next year, the Saturday evening posted a feature article on us. And they referred to our site as the Stonehenge of America. And that was before the astronomy, astronomical research was actually begun. We just thought that the big stone, you know, the root slabs and the wall slabs and some of the standing stones reminded them of Stonehenge. Uh, however, it wasn't until 1965 when a book by Gerald Hopkins, and I know Maria mentioned, I, or somebody mentioned his name earlier, uh, he wrote Stonehenge Decoded, and uh, a CBS special came out, uh, The Mystery of Stonehenge that year. And that's Narrated my by my old Mr. colleague, Charles Collingwood. Oh. That's right. <laughs> wow. That's, 
small world. <laughs> but I still remember that. I remember that film, and we watched it in a library much uh, much later over National Handshow. They had that very that video back in the 70s. We saw it again. But that got the uh, researchers interested in maybe some of these stone markers out, and they were all around the uh, about 15 acres. We have 110 acres in total, but about 15 acres surrounding the, what we call the main site, where most of the big structures are located, about a one-acre area. And even in the 1930s, people knew these standing stones were out there. So they began opening up on one of the alignments, which became the winter solstice sunset clearing and alignment back in 1965 and 67. Uh, A researcher that had been on it was a young man. He became a nuclear uh, uh, engineer, and he installed the two reactors on the Nimitz, which is kind of a cool thing these days with Mm. the UFO thing. Yeah. And retired in Osaka. Just before he retired in Osaka, Japan, he was uh, working on the Fukushima 10 years ago. He was one of the Westinghouse people that helped on that mess over there. So he had a long career. But the first thing he really did is get our astronomical alignments open. And he took the very first picture in 1967. It was a cirrus clouds. The sun was kind of obscured, but you could see the light of it setting over the monolith. And just about four or five months ago, he's in France right now for the winter, but he uh, actually sent me those photographs, uh, two photographs from 1967, the winter solstice sunset. I had never seen them before, but I, we were with him in 1970 when we actually saw the very first clear skies with the sun's orb actually setting on that monolith. So functionally, it's like Stonehenge. Today, we have 57 alignments with the sun, moon, and stars. And so functionally, it's like Stonehenge, but the form is quite a bit different, as Maria will tell you. It does have structures that do like do look a lot like some of the megalithic sites I've seen in Ireland and in England. And even like when we went to Malta, there's some resemblances to some of the features well, that are. Some sites. of this looks like New Grange, where you have a chamber inside and the sun comes through a narrow slit and illuminates a spiral oh. and all that. We do have yes, we do have that. Uh, that illumination was found only two years ago. It's an equinox, which is coming up in a little over a mm. month, and we have three alignments in the morning. We have to watch three, three actually, uh, and they're one after the other. And then in the evening is a uh, four points, there are four collinear stones that make an alignment to the west, where the sun sets on the equinox sunset for spring and fall. So um, we have 23 star alignments, too. And that was actually a surprise to us when the Harvard-Smithsonian Center uh, looked at our, da- our survey data and he said part of the report, and a gentleman, I think it was named Ro- Rosenthal, sent the report back and said your alignments work 1800 B.C. due to the Earth's tilt and the obligity changing. Wow. But also 23 star alignments. And we had a gentleman from Penn State, a doctor of uh, archaeoastronomy, Dr. Winkler, and back in about 20 years ago, he worked on that for five years, and he identified various stars that they had detected back in the 70s, you know. And unfortunately, Dr. Winkler died suddenly. He had been with us for about five years, and he mm. never quite completed that star analysis. But we have the North Star, and then we have 23 star alignments besides that at our site. So it seems to be quite compl- uh, complicated site or sophisticated site, I Very say. sophisticated. Okay, we've got about uh, 10 minutes left in the show. It's amazing how time flies. I want you and Marie to talk among yourselves, and we'll eavesdrop, about the ley line connections and the alignment connections between Stonehenge and your site, America's Stonehenge, across the entire Atlantic. Go. Well, Maria is definitely the yes, expert well, in this area. Far more than I know, but I will say that the winter solstice, uh, the summer solstice sunrise was found back in 2012. 
It became part of a History Channel America on Earth episode. And um, it has been doused even in the 1970s, and it was on one of the what we call ley lines. But I'm going to let Maria pick it up before I say too many wrong things about that particular alignment. And I can, you know, I can help out if she needs some information or whatever. Okay, well, you see, there's many different types of lays that have been categorized since the 70s, uh, which Sig Longren, who did doubt America Stonehenge, has classified himself. So in America, you tend to use the word quite generically to explain every single alignment. And so uh, I have doused that line at Stonehenge. It's not particularly strong, but it's, it does have an energy flow. What was outlined in, in the 70s to, cap, to classify the lays was you can have a topographical alignment, which means a site is linked to one, one another, or you can have an energy lay, which has energy flowing through it that can be recorded. So I think the, the lay between the, the two, uh, America Stonehenge and England Stonehenge, is a kind of mixture of a topographical alignment with a slight energy flow through it. And which is, you know, interesting uh, nonetheless. And looking at Dennis's outline of where it enters Stonehenge, it enters Stonehenge at a quite uh, an odd place that uh, what's called Trilothon 57 and 58. They are actually re-erected. They, they fell down in the 18th century and they've been uh, put back up. And then it heads to just outside of the, uh, the altar stone, then goes through the other two uh, trilithons. So it's, it's not at the, at the center of, of the site, as it were. It's, it's slightly to one side, which is, uh, which is quite interesting, so it's, actually. So it's tangential. Also, yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, sli it's slightly off, uh, so, so to speak. Uh, so also with which I mentioned on the show previously, some lays are lay systems and a lay system has two entwining or three entwining energy currents associated with it, like flowing around it like mighty, mighty rivers. And in decoding uh, America's Stonehenge, it does have those two earth currents associated with, with a line going through the site. So it does reflect that. It would be interesting for Dennis. Uh, I was just thinking to maybe send out a transmission inside one of the chambers. Yes, because absolutely. Because we're talking about you know transmitting inside the queen's chamber, and to see if there's any inference or, or what's going on. That was one of my questions too. I the Oracle Chamber, and I was going to ask Maria. You know, we have the yeah. Oracle, let me let, let me interrupt. Uh, Tuesday, Thomas, are you with us? Unmute. Yeah, sorry about that. Okay. Yep. When you do your Skype session with Maria, you should include Dennis because we need a protocol for both sites. We need to be wary of lays and battery drainage and have backup batteries stored. You'll know what this all means, Dennis, when you get into that conversation. But assuming your equipment comes this week, putting it together is really simple. Using it is really simple, but knowing how to use it and where since you can wander around that site for hours, I think would get us a tremendous amount of new network information. Well, that sounds exciting, yeah. and that was one of my questions, too. Uh, 110 acres of different features, but um, we even have an earthquake fault line that splits the entire hilltop in half. You know, and I know some of the stone circles in Wales and Scotland uh, in England are either on or near a fault line. I don't know if that's something that I'm sure... 
Maria's been involved with too. Does that come into play at all? Uh, every single stone circle in the British Isles and 1,300 have survived, and that's just a fraction of that which was, are all within one to, uh, to two miles of a fault line. They're not necessarily on them, but they're within, within that, mainly because you get a geological phenomena occur with that, which is quite exciting, and it, it makes the stones kind of tingle with piezoelectrical uh, effects. So, but yes, it's within a, a mile and a half. Mm. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think yeah, definitely. And I'll show you our fault line when you come up to visit. <laughs> yes, indeed. So anyway, Thomas, you need to include Dennis on your tutorial because he has this extraordinary site. It's it's his. He doesn't have to ask any permission. There's no deep state's going to come and swoop down with black helicopters and say, no, you can't do that. So we we have an amazing resonance potential here for Maria's next foray, uh, one Sunday afternoon from tonight. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think uh, we can sort of um, have a have a one-on-one -on -one and just go through the, the the process and and do a dry run. Um, exactly what we're going to be doing with Maria and, and be calibrating a few things, um, and then establish, I guess, maybe identify a couple of different sites in particular. Um, that could be interesting to go and do some. Well, some I think Maria's tests. idea of doing something from within one of the structures is very interesting, very important. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Dennis, yeah, because there's another site. Go ahead. Sorry, there's another site near me that's very similar to America Stonehenge because America Stonehenge is, you know, the main site is Chambers, and we have, and I'm sure you'll remember, Richard West Kennet Long yeah. Barrow. Yeah. Yep. And I could do. I could have we could involve that at some point oh, as well really? in the near future and, com and compare that to America's Stonehenge chambers. And then we can figure out the cursus, <laughs> which is very mysterious. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, uh, Dennis, yeah, well, yeah, 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 well, did, did you tell me that you found an alignment or your nephew or some one of your team found an alignment between America's Stonehenge and Giza? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's quite a few of them. I mentioned to Maria too. Uh, on the astronomical lines, you can connect anything in the world with just a straight line. But these are on the alignments themselves. They overlay it, and the uh, I believe it's the August first sunrise goes right through the Giza Plateau, goes to the Great Pyramid. True south is Machu Picchu. The winter solstice sunset goes to the Pyramid, as we mentioned, I think, on the last show at Teotihuacan, and Pueblo Benito at Chaco is where our equinox sunrise, sunset goes through. On the opposite side is the uh, pyramids on the uh, Canary Islands, which I never was aware of until I drew the line over there. And I'm like, what's in the Canaries? And then I blew it up, and there's a truncated pyramids there. Oh, so this, my. You know, and they, so we got to check those for – that's where I need Maria over here to check these out, you know, for the lay, you know? <laughs> wow. Okay, because I'm thinking that when she goes to um, uh, Giza in March, we're going to want to do the same thing. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, sorry, guys, I'm having some computer problems here. Anyway, um, did you do a, a, a kind of a ley line map for America's Stonehenge, Maria? Maria? 
Yeah, yes, uh, I, I have. But again, in America, you're a little bit, if I, if I may be so bold, to say <laughs> you're very far behind in how we look at uh, Earth's uh, ley lines these days. We're looking for the, for the sentient currents that surround the ley. So we've kind of gone beyond the ley here, and we're looking for very deep aquifers that emit a spiral pattern. We're looking for these Earth currents, because the Earth currents are the most important in monumental layout rather than just the lay. That's very, very significant. And that's what we are, have been looking in for the past 30 years. And yet you're in America, you're still focusing on the lanes. So what okay. I did for, for Dennis for America's Stonehenge was look at the earth currents there. Maria, I included two images from the Star Trek episode of Kirk and, and Spock are drinking the water because it reminded me of these subterranean underground wells or rivers that you said they're they're deeper than the aquifers that are often associated with the pyramids and so forth and uh you yeah, know scalosian well the the, the, the yeah. thing that i'm concerned about is that dennis gets all set up and because he has not been warned the same thing happens to him that happened to you standing on a lay that connects yes. america's stonehenge to the to the other stonehenge and all these batteries go dead and we don't want that to happen. Yes, that's what you need to avoid, Dennis. <laughs> so we've had a lot of that over the years. Yes, absolutely. We have people come up, do professional shows, drones, cameras, cell phones, and nothing but battery problems. So um, I'm kind of aware of that, but I, I don't know what will happen when we do this, though. Well, this will be so, part of the Tuesday. Hat that you can... This will be part of the Tuesday briefing, okay? <laughs> okay, guys, we are we are basically down to the last few seconds. I want to thank everyone. My guest this morning, too numerous to mention, go to the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on tonight's show, and you'll see them with all the background and biographies. We're now anticipating that on Saturday, we're going to do a one-year plus one-day anniversary of the Perseverance rover on Mars. You don't want to miss that one. And then Sunday night, we're going to do a quick look at Maria's latest adventures. In fact, I may call the show Maria's Latest Adventures, and we have no idea what she's going to find or who she's going to hear or what they're going to say. But you would be very foolish if you don't tune in next Sunday night for the latest in the perils of Pauline slash Maria. Well, that's the other side of uh, midnight for this week. Thank you one and all for listening. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies, tell everybody, because this is an ongoing uh, odyssey. I have no idea where it's going to end. It may end up with us finding out who, in fact, is at the other end of the phone. So until tomorrow, next week, and next year, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.